Hi, everybody. Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio. Ooh, what a scorcher of a show we have for you tonight. But first and foremost, there's a couple of videos I really want you to check out at youtube.com slash Radio. We did an interview with Stephen Camarota from the Center for Immigration Studies, 62% of illegal immigrant households on welfare. I hope that you will check that out. Also, one of my favorite YouTube personalities, Bill Whittle, and I, we did a show together on the brink of war and economic collapse, a discussion with Bill Whittle. He's host of the popular show Afterburner, and we did that on RK selection theory in the gene wars of the modern world. And um, so first up, we have a flat earther. I'm not a flat earther, and uh, I don't think that the theory has any validity. Nonetheless, I find it always an intellectually important and useful exercise to dive into people's perspectives and beliefs and bring reason to evidence to bear on what I won't tell you what happens at the end. You really, really got to listen to to figure it out. But uh, I think it's a good intellectual exercise to debate with people who have widely divergent beliefs and figure out what reason and evidence can do to help disabuse them of what may be overly fantastical notions. And it's an interesting topic. Why not? Why not? So we chatted with a flat earther. And then we had a couple on who is um, basically wanted to ask, can we be good parents if we're not getting along that well as a married couple? And we talked about some ways to resolve their conflicts, which was, I think, very helpful and useful. And last, for those of you who like the RK selection stuff, oh, yeah, there's more. Uh, I dove very deep in with a listener into uh, R versus K selection and how it affects the end times of a civilization. So I hope you'll really enjoy that. Freedomainradio.com slash donate to keep these conversations heading your way across the ether. Thank you so much for listening, for watching, for supporting, and particularly for donating. Here we go. All right. Well, up first today, we have Stephen with a brand new topic on the show. Stephen wrote in and said, have you examined the world in which you live? Do you believe you are living on a spinning sphere because someone told you, or do you know from personal experience? That's from Stephen. Hello, hello, Stephen. How are you doing? Good. How are you doing, Stephen? Um, well, thanks. I'm well. So I uh, wonder if you could uh, expand uh, upon this in a non-spherical fashion. <laughs> well, recently, if you've seen it or not, there's a growing group of people who are doing experiments and coming forward and stating that the Earth is a flat and motionless plane. That's the expansion? Well, basically. Okay. And uh, so it's <clears throat> it's motionless and it's flat. And do, do they have any idea how thick it is? That's an interesting question. But um, no, like the Russians have dug about eight miles deep and that's as deep as anyone has ever been. Right. And where's the center of gravity? And look, I, I, I'm as fine with unusual questions as the next guy. I'm just sort of trying to wrap my head around it again in a non-spherical fashion. Um, and where's the center of gravity in this, uh, on this flat plane? Well, in our motionless plane, there is no need for gravity. We have electromagneticism, attraction between forces that are attracting one another. So is it that we are magnetically attracted to the Earth and we're magnets not, isn't gravity is not part of the equation, right? Yeah, it's an electromagnetic universe, not a gravitational universe. Oh, okay. So the orb, uh, now, do we orbit the sun? Uh, no, the sun, sun, stars, and moon orbit us. Okay, and Mars, of course, orbits us, so it's um, yeah, Earth-centered 
solar system and the Earth is like flat. Is it round and flat like a dinner plate? Yes, it is. Um, it is a circle around the North Pole, around uh, surrounded by Antarctica, like a pizza dish. You know? So Antarctica is like Saturn's rings around the flat thing, right? That's the very edge. Yeah, Antarctica is the edge of the world. Right. Okay. And so when you fly, when people believe that they're flying around the world, what happens? You can fly around a circle. But if they say that they're heading in one direction relative to magnetic north, yes. if they're continuing to, going, to go east, and then they end up back where they started? Yes, east and west is only relative to magnetic north. Compass is only point north. Oh, so they're flying not um, around the world, but in a circle around the North Pole, which is at the center of the flat Earth. Yes. Okay. And um, <clears throat> so this, of course, requires some challenging reorganization of our spatial orientation, which, you know, uh -huh. I'm fine with. <laughs> I mean, I'm asking people to reimagine society without a state and, and ethics without a deity and so on. So, I, I again, I am fine. I'm sorry? I certainly agree with you on all the uh, um, anarchist uh, qualities of what you've been talking about for a long time. Yeah, that may not seem like a ringing endorsement to some of the listeners, but uh, that, that's as it may be. So why is, is there, is there a deity involved in this formulation? Well, to me, I don't really um, ascribe to any religion in particular, but after finding out um, what I know now, I have come from being an atheist to believing in a higher power. It would be pretty tough to maintain that the Earth is the center of the universe, everything revolves around the Earth, and for there to be no deity? That yeah. would be kind of tough, right? That, that would be like a weird coincidence, <laughs> you know, yeah, of the entire infinity of 100 billion galaxies. They all revolve around the Earth, and the Earth has a distinctive shape relative to the rest of the universe, uh, at least. Because, you know, generally matter that is more than a couple of hundred miles across tends to coalesce, as you know, into a sphere. And gravity has its arguments, the, the pro-gravity proponents of the case have this argument that says, well, since mass uh, wants to find its closest proximity to the center of mass, you end up with a sphere, uh, which is where we see the rest of the planets in the solar system, the sun itself, the moons, at least the moons at Ceres and Phobos around Mars are pretty small. But the, um, uh, the, the moons that we can see that are of any reasonable size, size sort of above asteroid size, tend to be um, spheres, right? So we have, as far as we can tell, according to this hypothesis, it's a unique uh, position uh, to, to be the only flat rather than spherical large mass object in the universe. Is that fair to say? Well, in our model, we don't really, um, we don't believe in things that we can't see and verify for ourselves. You know, like, we don't really believe that any, anything that NASA says for one matter. You don't believe anything that NASA says? No, we only believe things that we can verify. So they, they, they might not even be called NASA. Well, they were started with Nazis from Operation Paperclip. You know, Warner von Braun and other Nazis. Okay, let, before we go to the National Socialist Connection, um, there is a uniqueness in, the, in this cosmology. There's a uniqueness to the world, and the, the world is flat like a, and round um, like a dinner plate rather than spherical. Uh, is it your contention that the other celestial bodies are not uh, spherical? Well, the celestial bodies are 
like um, in in question right now. Like if you take a, a like a high zoom camera and you zoom in on Venus, like somebody has recently, it certainly doesn't look like what you'll see from NASA, for one matter. I mean, I've had a look at Venus uh, when I was younger. I bought a telescope when I worked, uh, and um, it it did appear to have little crescents, you know, the way that the moon did, but of course, much smaller. Yeah, telescopes are um, curved. You know, the lens is curved, like uh, convex. Well, I- except that, of course, it it correlates with what we see with the moon. That the moon has crescents that would indicate a spherical um, reality. And uh, that accords well, with what we see with the telescope. So the curve of the telescope isn't fundamentally affecting the way that the moon looks to us, right? The moon and is, listen, I'm, I'm sorry about, I, I know, because whenever I put forward anarchy, and, and these are probably objections that have been examined, and uh, at least some response in this cosmology has been replied to, because, you know, I don't want to be the guy who's saying, but what about the roads, you know, when it comes to a voluntary society? So I appreciate your patience when I just sort of put forward my natural yeah. um, responses to it. Yeah, there's there's no question that is um, wrong to be asking. You know, it's the whole world. It's a lot of um, it's a lot of investigation that it takes. Okay, so what's the if you say that it's the curvature of the telescope lens that is causing the um, apparent crescent of Venus? then why doesn't the same effect happen with the moon? Because when I look at the moon through the naked eye, then I look at it through a telescope, as I did recently with my daughter, there's no distortion that's particularly visible. And also when I look at things fairly far away uh, through a telescope, uh, they don't appear to be distorted. So why would a distortion be introduced when looking at Venus? Um, well, can I get to the moon first? Sure. So the moon is a very interesting and mysterious thing. They say that you can only see one side of the moon because it is constantly spinning so perfectly that it only faces us in one direction. Right. And if you assume that what they're saying is correct about the moon, about the reflection of the sun, if you try and cast a light on a sphere, there will be a hot spot. And when you look at the moon, the moon is equally illuminated from top to bottom on a full moon. Well, yeah, but that's because the sun is 93 million miles away. It's not a flashlight pointed, you know, four inches from an orange, right? So there's not going to be a hot spot if the light is that diffused, is well, it? Well, on our model, the sun is about 3,000 miles up, and we do have a lot of ways to confirm this. And is that right that it's 32 miles across? Yeah. Instead of some, – some people say um, – we'll call them the uh, – scientists say that it's 840,000 miles across, but according to this cosmology, it's 32 miles across and th- only a few thousand miles away? Yeah, the scientists throughout that time have uh, like constantly changed their numbers. Like the, um, the distance to the sun has changed dramatically to fit their model, not to you know, measure what it is in reality. What has it, I, I mean, from when I was a kid, it's been 93 million miles so, or eight light minutes. So well, what, where has it changed from? A long time ago. And many people have theorized the um, the distance and so on. But if you um, use geometry on Earth, we can measure the distance to the sun using uh, trigonometry. And it's a few thousand miles away. So the sun is closer than Australia. Australia. Like up, yeah. From, from Canada, right? Yeah. So horizontally, uh, sorry. 
So horizontally um, across the flat dinner plate, Australia is further away than the sun. Yes. Okay. Got it. So, but when the sun me... is spinning around and then goes around to the other side of of the Earth, is that right? Oh no, the sun spins. Yeah. Is it like a um, like a dangly ball from a pole that it spins around? Because it can't go around the other side of the Earth, right? Because when you phone someone in Hong Kong and it's dark where you are and it's nighttime where you are, it's light in Hong Kong, which would, to me, do do something to support the sphere hypothesis. Well, um, sorry, go ahead. There's a lot of different um, variations in time zones throughout the year. You know, like um, Alaska will have much um, warmer temperatures overall than Antarctica, even though with the tilt, the supposed tilt, it should be facing the sun and the antarctica has you know temperatures of under like 100 degrees when alaska is much well hang on warm. sorry i i don't want to get into temperature just yet i'm trying to sort of picture so i'm on a flat dinner plate and i'm up let's say i've got ham and eggs and bacon and a smiley face and i'm up around sort of the top left yolk ball eyeball and it's nighttime there where is the sun in this cosmology it can't be anywhere above me otherwise i'd still be able to see it right well you you can't see forever and light doesn't travel forever that's something that they'll tell you that you know you can see light from stars uh, trillions of miles away i'm sorry i'm not sure you're answering the question so if i'm where i am and it's nighttime and i'm on a flat dinner plate where is the sun is it on the other side of the dinner plate yes so then there must be people on the other side of the dinner plate because, you know, like I've done calls, um, interviews with people in Hong Kong and, you know, it's nighttime here and I can see the sun like right over their shoulder in real time. So is it the case that there are people at the top of the dinner plate and the bottom? No, it is a flat plane and the, the sun circles from uh, Capricorn to... Uh, cancer in the northern hemisphere, Capricorn is the southern hemisphere throughout the year. That's what creates the uh, the seasons. No, but I'm not talking about the seasons. I'm talking about night and day. Mm. So when it's nighttime, where I, I'm, I'm outside, like last in August, I went to go and see the meteor shower with my daughter. And so when I'm outside, I'm looking up at the stars. If the world is flat, and people in Australia, it's noon, let's say. So it's midnight for me, and it's noon in Australia. Where is Australia on? The, it can't be on the on my side of the flat because otherwise I'd still see the sun or at least significant portions of of daylight, right? Yeah. Have you seen the? So uh, is it is is the sun flipped around to the other side of the plate? Yeah, it's just on the other side. It circles around. So the people on us, people in Australia, are on the other side of the like they're on the bottom of the dinner plate. Uh huh. Have you ever seen a map? Um, the UN uh, logo. Yes, that that is our our map, the equal uh, equal distance map. It's basically the globe flattened. No, I understand that, but you're still still not. Uh, when it's nighttime where I am in Canada, the spherical model where the Earth is rotating on its axis and and then rotating in orbit around the sun explains that when it's nighttime for me, when I'm facing away from the sun, it's daytime in Australia, which is facing towards the sun. And vice versa. I don't understand how the flat model takes that into account. Well, when it's only 3,000 miles up and light doesn't travel forever, it, has, it is like a localized spotlight that travels around the world. 
But if it's flat and it doesn't go to the other side of the dinner plate, then it would just be low on the horizon for me, right? It'd be further away, but it wouldn't be pitch dark, right? Um, no, and there's a lot to support what I'm saying. Like, um, if, if it were, as they say, it would be an equal light that goes all the way around. It wouldn't be as it is. I'm not sure what that means. Well, like in their, in their videos, they'll show the, um, the light on the horizon ending equally all the way around the planet. But the light from the sun is localized when it goes away. Well, uh, when I watch a sunset, the light is localized to where the sun is going down, to use the colloquial mm-hmm. way of putting it. Yeah. It is, um, it is perspective, viewpoint, and atmospheric density and the limit of what you, how far you can see, the vanishing point. Okay, I don't know what that means, but what I can ask then, if, if we look at the magnetic model of why we stick to the ground, it's because of magnetics, right? Yeah. And do magnetics have a very similar... Uh, I'm no physicist, obviously, right? But does magnetics have a similar attraction as the theory of gravitation? Because the theory of gravitation, obviously, as you know, doesn't work with the flat Earth, right? Yeah, we we do not um, accept the theory of gravity because it was um, basically thought up by this guy named Cavendish back in the 1700s using uh, an experiment hanging uh, lead weights in a shed. He said that he could gain the um, the gravitational constant that way, weighing the Earth and the Sun and all kinds of other things. But that experiment cannot be reproduced today. Well, I would imagine that there's quite a lot of experiments from the 17th century that can't be reproduced today because it's a couple of hundred years later. Yeah, but that's, uh, that's and... the basis for their equations that they still use today. Well, I mean, to be fair, I mean, oh, I guess you'd say that they, they haven't gone to the moon or they haven't sent probes past. No. Um, Jupiter, and that's all CGI, and it's all made up, right? Yeah, that's yeah. Look, I have all this, the hopes. Uh, okay. Pine, yeah, because, I mean, to me, if a theory can, if you can basically send a tiny probe from one planet, you know, billions of, of miles to past Pluto, uh, that's a pretty good validation of the theory. But I guess the response to that is that that stuff's all faked, right? I mean, like, how, how are they sending messages back and forth that far? It doesn't really seem plausible to me. Like, Pioneer 10 was a probe that they said was sent to Jupiter through the asteroid belt, launched on March 3rd, 1972. It was said to have arrived at its destination over 365 million miles away in only 20 months, bringing us images of Jupiter that could have easily been faked. Okay. Um, so... Of course, another way that people think that the Earth is a sphere, uh, I guess you'd say it's more flat like a dinner plate, is, of course, when, there's, um, when the Earth is between the sun and the moon, we see the curved shadow of the Earth against the moon's surface moving across it, right? Yeah. I'm not an expert on the subject, but it does have something to do with an electromagnetic vortex that moves in between. Like, I've just heard of this yesterday. I've been researching this topic for about nine months, and I learn new things every day. You know, I'm, no, I'm by no means an expert. I just, you know, I was trying to make contact with you because I do admire a lot of what you do. Okay, so we don't, there may be an answer out that we don't have it. And wouldn't it be possible, of course, to see the edge, right? Yes, but... Like, because you say you don't believe things that you can't see or have no visual evidence of. Do you have any photos of the edge here's a, of the world? Here's the thing. There's a thing called the Antarctic Treaty. 
the Antarctic, uh, Antarctica is actually guarded by every country around the world. I've seen documentaries from there. Yeah, you're, you're not allowed to go there. And when they have people go there for a tour, you only go to like a pinnacle outside of Southern America. There are no flights crossing Antarctica. There are no Southern like uh, circumnavigations. You can circumnavigate East and West, but you cannot circumnavigate North and South. So nobody flies over Antarctica and sees the, the edge, right? No. Like Operation High Jump, Operation Deep Freeze, and Operation Fishbowl are also operations that were, that were carried out by Admiral Byrd after World War II that went into Antarctica to explore. And there's a documentary of him talking about all of the things down there. But, but you have no proof of the edge, right? Um, we, we would love to go down there, but we're not allowed to. You have no proof of the edge, right? No. Okay. Now, I mean, that's, that's important, right? I mean, because if you... So it remains a hypothesis in that there's no proof. Yeah. Just like, you know, the globe. I'm sorry? Just like the globe remains a theory. And, uh, <laughs> let's just say that the, the, um, the elaborateness of the deception is something that is a little tricky for outsiders to, to accept. Well, uh, let me ask you this then. So, of course, there's, if you just jump into the sphere model for a second, there are constellations that are visible in the northern hemisphere that are not visible in the southern hemisphere and so on. And they tend to tilt around a little bit depending upon the, um, uh, the seasons, right? Yeah. And so, um, and that, as far as I understand it, the visibility or invisibility of the constellations accords with a spherical model of the Earth rather than a flat model of the Earth where you'd be able to see a lot more constellations because you're all pointing in the same direction, right? Well. That is an interesting point. But the thing is, on a world that is spinning a thousand miles an hour, spinning around the sun, spinning around the universe, which is going... Wait, wait, wait. Sorry. Sorry. Do you mean, you mean the current model, right? Yeah, the, like the, 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 the globular model. Okay. So if that's happening, we would be able to see something far different in the stars than what we do now. What we do now see is people from Capricorn are able to see the northern pole star polaris where they should not be able to polaris does not move it only moves in a very small circle and the rest of the stars rotate around it wait according to you're saying according to the current model like the globular model the stars rotate around polaris Every, everything is the same on on both models they just make it so that it works i'm not arguing that it works on the globular model but i'm saying that there is no curvature there is no proof on a on a globe that is 25,000 miles in circumference there should be a curvature of eight inches per mile squared and we have measured it there is no curvature like people will say that Kansas is as flat as a pancake or the Bolivian salt flats you can see for basically a hundred miles. There is no curvature. Like if, you know, you can say that Kansas is flat, but where's the extra curve to make up for the flatness of Kansas or the Bolivian salt flats? Are you saying so like you shoot a laser and according to the globular model of the world, the world should fall away from the laser a tiny bit, of course, you know, every certain amount of distance because it is a sphere, right? Yeah, I'll, I'll give you the, um, for 
the first like five miles would be 16 feet of curvature, six miles, 24 feet, seven miles, 32 feet, eight miles, 42 feet, and 100 miles, 6,666 feet, exponentially growing because of the nature of a ball. And you're saying, so if you shoot a laser, I guess, I don't know, would be a perfectly calm ocean or something. If you shoot a laser, then the laser remains a constant distance from the water, uh, which would seem to indicate that it's not a sphere. Is that right? Jaronism has done a test on this. He actually has done a four-mile laser test across an ocean showing that. Like, he pointed a laser at this board, like, right on the, on the water, a whiteboard. He pointed the laser on the water, had someone on the other side of the ocean, four miles away, and then he could look at the laser, and there is no curvature. There should have been 10 feet of curvature. It should have been 10 feet below the curvature. And this is on video. I, I sent you the video a long time ago. And so when I went very high altitude when I was six and then again when I was 16 flying from England to Africa, the curvature that I saw, would that be just something that I expected to see and my sort of eyes made it look that way? All um, fuselage windows have a curvature to them. At 30,000 feet, you would not be able to see a curvature even if it was a globe of 25,000 miles in circumference. You would only be able to see the curvature if you were above 100,000 miles in circumference, or 100,000 miles, or 100,000 uh, miles up. 100,000 miles up is what you'd need to see any kind of curve? Yes. But you measure this in four, four miles, and that's valid? Well, to see the um, horizontal curve, yes. But to see a curve going away from you, it should be four or um at four miles it should be 10 feet of curvature and what about the argument that's been made for thousands of years um which is that when you see a ship sailing away from a shore uh, that you see the the hull disappear before you see the top of the mast disappear yeah we have videos of this now too when you are not able to see the the boat with your naked eye you can take a telescope or a zoom, and you can see the entire boat from top to bottom. It's just your um, vanishing point, as far as you can see. So it's a trick of the eye? Is that some a mirage thing, or a trick of uh, the naked eye? Well, you, you can't see forever. I'm certainly not going to dispute that, especially <laughs> yeah. over 40. Uh, yeah, it's just atmospheric density. Like, when we're at the bottom you know like sea uh, sea level it's uh, especially dense the higher you go the further you can see because air gets lighter right now the retrograde motion of mars of course was one of the big challenges to the ancient ptolemaic system which is that when you observe mars there's times where it's going sort of left to right say across the sky and then at times it sort of goes backwards and then goes forwards again and this of course drove the ancient you know, uh, Earth-centered model of the solar system, people nuts because they couldn't really explain it. Now, when you put the sun at the center of the solar system, because Earth has a faster orbit being closer to the sun in general, has a faster orbit and a shorter year than Mars, there are times when it's accelerating past the sun, and that makes Mars, from the vantage point of Earth, appear to be moving backwards and then moving forwards. And um, how is that explained in the flat Earth-centered model of the solar system? Well, I'll theorize here, but... um. I'm pretty sure other people would be able to answer this better than I can. But let me give you an example. 
like um, the moon as viewed from the northern hemisphere as opposed to the southern hemisphere looks upside down because it's going in between the two hemispheres. So that could be the difference. Like they say that the, the stars go in the other direction in the southern hemisphere too, but if you turn around and look the other direction, they're coming from the other direction. It's just a perspective. And the backwards Australian toilets, the, the flushing backwards of the toilets, how's that explained? That is a, um, just because of the, you know, how they're made. No. No, you can take a North American toilet and it will flush uh, backwards. Um, the rotation will be different. It's not the way it's made. The cor- or, or you could say that it's the, um, the, Cori- the Coriolis effect is caused by the sun moving in between the northern and southern hemispheres. Because so if you have a, like, it's like the, the wake of a boat. So if you have a boat going along, the wakes go in different directions. That's what causes the Coriolis effect, electromagnetic uh, energy from the sun. Now, if I'm sticking to the ground because of magnetism and I'm not made of metal, how does that work? Is this a magnetism that also strongly affects things that are non-metallic? In your atoms and electrons. Well, yeah, but that doesn't mean that I stick to a giant magnet in the way that a piece of metal does. Um, like, like I've said, you know, I'm not, I'm not an expert. I don't think anyone is. We're just learning, you know. I've been at this Well, for... no, but I, I think being able... If you say that we stick to the ground because of magnetism, but magnetism primarily affects metal and we're not metal that seems like a fairly big stumbling block to be addressed because then what you have to do is you have to say well there's a special kind of magnetism that affects everything that's not made of metal plus metal and then this just sounds like another way of saying gravity well atoms have electrons that um have attraction to one another yes of course but i can still hold a magnet up to my hand and it doesn't stick it just falls away right yeah you know like the theory of gravity is basically there so you won't go flying off the spinning ball, you know, from centrifugal force. I don't think that's how science works. Like, I don't think you say, well, we have this theory so you don't go flying off. Are you saying that you'd have to explain why people stick to something that's spinning round and round? And without gravity, we'd all just fly off into space, as would the atmosphere. How does the atmosphere stay on the Earth? Well, in, there, in the flat model, there there are is, two. Is, are the clouds magnetically attracted to the Earth as well? There are two theories, like either the uh, infinite plane model, which some people believe, but most people believe that it's a a dome. Oh, like like a Stephen King like dome over a, a a town kind of thing. Like a Truman Show type enclosure, yes. Oh, okay. So it's like that medieval woodcutting of the guys that are peering through the edge of the dome and looking at the world beyond the world kind of thing. I guess you could say that. Uh-huh. And um, how high is the dome? Um, let's see. Well, people, like I sent you a video of an amateur rocket going up 73 miles and then hitting. If we're talking about the dome model, I would imagine that it would be higher in some places and lower in others, you know, like lower in the southern hemisphere than in the northern hemisphere. And do you have any idea what it's made of? I assume it's clear, of course, because the sun has to shine through it. It's the sun is not under the dome, right? They, there's some people who think that it's made of sapphire. There's some people that think the sun is above the dome. There's some people that think it's in it. Oh, the sun is in the dome. Like, these are all theories. I don't know what I'd quite call them theories as yet. <laughs> Conjectures, possibly. Um, 
Okay. Um, and I'm just curious why this is an important problem to work on. Because when you're on a spinning globe, you're the small part of the universe. You're not the universe. You know, you're only one very small part. You're one, one sun. You know, it's not the sun. It's not the world. When you're an insignificant part of the world, it makes you seem like makes it seem like a you're insignificant, right? Yeah. Sorry, Mike just told me that the toilet thing is a myth, but hurricanes rotate the opposite direction yes. in the two hemispheres. Like, and, and like I was, um, the reason being that sometimes my bowel movements are so strong that I often get toilet flushes and hurricanes confused for obvious reasons that uh, my family is always very excited about. Um, so there's a psychological preference that you have for being in the middle of a sort of Truman Show constructed universe that is built with you at the center uh, and, and as the important, most important element. Is that right? Well, I haven't seen any proof, you know, from anyone other than NASA saying otherwise. So, you know, it's just what we're working with. Well, no, there's, it's not just NASA. I mean, trust me, people thought that the Earth was, Earth was a sphere long before NASA came along. I mean, it would be thousands and thousands of years ago, as you know, where they did that experiment where they put the two sticks in the ground uh, yes. 2,000 uh, kilometers apart or something like that and found that they had different, differently pointing shadows at the same time of day. And they were actually able to calculate the... Um, uh, the uh, diameter of the Earth, circumference of the Earth, well, very accurately. That was, and, uh, what, what's his name? So, it, 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 I can't really pronounce his name. Ithagor, Ithagor, but he supposedly discovered the tilt of the Earth and the circumference and the distance to the sun, but all of his measurements and work was destroyed in a fire, so there's no way to confirm what he did. But the, the stick... Oh, no, they can reproduce, no, they can reproduce those experiments, and, and those experiments remain the same. The, the stick thing is explained today. by the sun moving over, you know... Well, I don't know that it's explained. There's an alternative explanation which radically alters the um, the size, dimension, proximity, relationship, ratio, and movement of everything in the universe and creates a singular exception for the shape of everything in the universe, creates an entire parallel theory of um, attraction called electromagnetics that doesn't require metal and dispenses with the law of gravity uh, and uh, explains away uh, a whole bunch of um, uh, phenomenon, like the Earth looking round when it goes up against the moon, uh, like the difference in the constellations between north and south, and so on. It creates an entirely different cosmology that uh, Occam's razor, you know, like of any two explanations, yes. a simple one is usually the best. Occam's razor would um, lend you to discard fundamentally because it's, it's oh, too complicated and it, it doesn't more, explain enough what's more simple you know that we're spinning on our axis and tilted and spinning around the sun and spinning around the universe and all that or just we're a fixed and motionless plane i mean have you ever felt a spin or a motion well no but i mean the laws of inertia would explain that right that when you move with something i mean that's why astronauts float because they're moving with something well, and me... so if you are moving with something then you will not uh, really experience that motion any more than you feel uh, you know if you're sitting inside a train uh, you can doze off um, whereas if you were strapped to the top of the train <laughs> it might be a little bit more difficult because you'd have more of a sense of motion uh, let me so you, uh... i think the laws of inertia uh, do explain i think why we don't feel such a sense of motion let me give you an analogy have you ever been in the ocean for a very long time or been in a been on a trampoline jumping around for a really long time and then when you get off you can still feel the motion for hours 
I think I can understand what you mean. Uh, and what does that what does that establish? Let's let's say you're spinning, like they say on the globular model, at a thousand miles an hour on the equator. If you get into a plane and then fly in the opposite direction, would you not feel the spin? No, because you're inside the plane and the, you're moving with the plane, and the air is moving with the plane. Well, here's the thing: north or er, east and west flights are about the same time. So when you're flying against the spin of the Earth, you should be getting to your destination at 1,500 miles an hour instead of just 500 miles an hour, as opposed to flying with the spin going 500 miles an hour in your direction. Because they say that the, um, the atmosphere is pulled along at 1,000 miles an hour. But if you're going against... But you, no, but you're, you're, you're not moving independent of the Earth and its atmosphere. You're moving in the Earth and its atmosphere. Right, so if if you think of a ladybug on a tennis ball, if you spin the tennis ball, the ladybug can walk from one sort of little stripe on the tennis ball to another, and if you spin and then it turns back, well, the ladybug's going to take the same amount of time to to go back, right? Because it's it's moving with everything's moving the same direction, the same way, and in the same context. Yes, but if it's moving, the wind should be moving a thousand miles an hour. Towards no, because the air is moving with the earth, right? As far as they say. But we do have... Well, okay, but here's my question. What's your, what's your disproof hypothesis, right? Now, listen, if you guys are able to break through the army of robot penguin guards or something like that that's <clears> in the Antarctic and are able to show the edge or, um, you know, able to, to go up uh, in some manner and, and show the edge of the earth... Uh, or, or, or able to perform miraculous feats of uh, physical prediction using an electromagnetic theory that doesn't require magnetism and metals. Well, that to me would be okay. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you've man. blown my mind and that's really cool. But my question is, what is your disproof? Because it seems to me that there's this belief that this is the case and then the, the, the sun gets changed in size and it gets moved around well, and uh, stuff gets explained away and then we discard gravity. Because, of course, if gravity theory works... A flat Earth is kind of impossible because, of course, as you keep walking towards the edge, the gravity well is behind you. And it's like going up a further ramp until you get to the very edge, in which case you're just standing on the edge. And I guess that's close to being what we have now. So tell me how you would know that this thesis or this theory is false. Because if there's no falsifiability, it's got nothing to do with science, right? Yeah, there are many. We have flight instructors coming out and stating that we all fly over a flat earth because of gyroscopes gyroscopes are devices that are made to withstand all forces including gravity to keep level so using gyroscopes they keep level of course they keep level because that's the theory of gravitation but it, because they're constantly fly they're at a relatively constant altitude over the earth and so of course they're going to stay level because everything's pointing towards the center of the earth which is the center of gravity gyroscopes are made to withstand g-forces gravity and everything to keep no 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 you unless they're anti-gravity gyroscopes you can't there's nothing that withstands gravity i mean a, a rocket ship doesn't withstand gravity that's why you need so much candle at the bottom of it but they're made to keep upright and withstand all forces but no no they don't withstand all forces they overcome those forces Right, like I'm not defying gravity when I climb the stairs. I'm just climbing the stairs. 
I'm working away. I'm working to get away from gravity, right? I mean, I'm still subject to it. I'm not immune to it. And gyroscopes can't be immune to gravity. And the theory of gravity would say why they would stay level as you fly around the Earth. They're made to stay upright. So when pilots fly upside down and go all over the place, it stays level. They have an artificial horizon, the rising of the horizon. So when they fly, they keep level. On a globe, flying at 500 miles an hour, you would constantly have to dip down your nose to keep at the same altitude. But what they do is they fly at the horizon. The horizon always rises up to your eye level, no matter how high you go. On a globe, the horizon would always drop down. But on all amateur balloons going up to over 125,000 feet, it shows no curvature. It shows the horizon at eye level and no curvature. So you still need to tell me how you would know if your theory is false. How we, know, how we would know if it's false? Yes. I mean, you have to admit, there's quite a lot of evidence for the, for the, for the sphere, right? Um, I feel like there's, there is much more for our model at this point. There's quite a lot of evidence for the sphere. I mean, because you have to wish NASA, you have to wish, like, you have to have created this. It is obviously a big conspiracy. If, if this truth, this truth must be known to NASA. It must be known to aeronautics engineers. It must be known to uh, engineers. It must be known to, like, the people who build the big wide suspension bridges where they try to take into account the curvature of the Earth and make the pillars a little bit uh, further apart at the top than at the bottom to take into account that. Uh, it must be known to, like, millions of people around the world. Yes. Uh, and I would assume that they've let at least some civilian leaders in on this. I assume that people who are creating rockets, that intercontinental ballistic missiles, they would all have to know. And then you'd have to have this massive conspiracy, of course, to keep this information from the public and also to create thousands and thousands and thousands of hours of, um, I mean, not just doctored, but radically created image. And also you'd have to have, you know, because there are satellites floating around the Earth. What would they be, holographs or something like that? There is quite a lot of uh, people that you'd have to have in on this um, uh, conspiracy, uh, none of whom would ever tell the world, and none of whom are benefiting economically from keeping the secret. It creates jobs, and many people's jobs depend on not learning the truth. But many people, so whose jobs depend on not learning the truth? You know, like everyone you said, everyone who works on supposed satellites, everyone who works with the curvature. But we have land surveyors, flight instructors, U.S. Navy missile instructors, many experts. No, no, we're talking about disproofs at the moment. So are you saying that the fact that because of the curve of the Earth, it was believed that we need what Arthur C. Clarke, I think, this geosynchronous orbit with um, the uh, communication satellites, that we didn't actually need those because we can send the, the radio waves or whatever it is straight across the flat Earth. So we yes. didn't actually need those satellites, and they were a hoax in the launching and the fact that they seem to be flying by overhead. Uh, how is that uh, created? Because that's a lot of work. If you don't actually need that, why would you divert money from your weapons programs to create satellites unless there was some value in terms of overcoming the curvature of the Earth? Well, let me give you an example. The dew line was a distant early radar system that was stretched across the Fullerton... Uh, the Fullerton... Wait, 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 wait. Are you not answering my question? Um, well, It seems like you're not answering my question. Well, I don't want an example. I want to know why it was that the every government in the world threw up these satellites that were completely unnecessary according to the Flat Earth model. 
Well, you know, and and how? Why can we see them? There, there are some theories, like the the ISS that they'll tell you comes over. They say that satellites could either just be like um, already there, already unexplainable things that they just say, oh, those are satellites. You know, because when you look at the the ISS, it doesn't exactly look like a space station. It looks like a self-illuminating light. A what? It looks like basically another star. Looks like a light. Like when they say that's a satellite passing over, it just looks like a light in the sky. But if you look at many different supposed satellites going throughout the sky, they'll do very strange things. They'll have very strange movements, things that satellites do. I've never do. seen that. I've seen the satellites just slowly cruising above. I've never seen satellites doing anything strange. Again, that's just my particular observation. We have, we have but are you people. saying the satellites either aren't there or they're there, but they're not satellites? Or what? On, on our model, satellites don't exist because they're impossible here's um like here's something well, no no they're not impossible look the the moon orbits the earth in the flat earth right the moon orbits the earth well um, i'm saying they're impossible and, and wouldn't that be the case with satellites as well that they could do it as well through some electromagnetic whirlpool thing i'm saying that it's impossible because of the um technology that they supposedly use they need actuators air-driven um paramedics valves and all kinds of things that would need to be replaced in the supposed heat and coolness of space that they never have to replace things that don't exist in our world let me read you something from an industrial valve expert who has come out stating that the iss is impossible okay think about okay i'll accept i'll accept that this guy says that it's uh that it's impossible so then the rockets that are launched to supposedly put the satellites in orbit don't actually go anywhere. Is that right? Well, as far as I'm concerned, nobody has ever gone into space. And when the rockets launch, you can see that they're not going straight up. They go over. They go straight into the ocean. They go straight into the ocean, these rockets. They make missiles. You know, they're a military wing of the government. That's NASA. Okay. Now, tell me again, what is the hypothesis by which this could be, or the results by which this could, could be disproved? Now, clearly, if you were able to fly over the Antarctic, and then you ended up not going over the edge, clearly that would be a disproof of the thesis, right? Yeah, there never has been a, now a north or southern circumnavigation. And all of the satellite photos that show that there's no edge when they photograph the globe and so on, this all part of an elaborate hoax to create jobs for astronauts? Well, if you look at the photos, there are many instances where you can see Photoshop, replicate clouds, copy and paste over and over and over. And when you look at... Wait, are you saying that these people who are incredibly intelligent are really terrible at creating their fakes? (laughs) I could show you. Yeah, it's terrible. And is that the case with all of them? Because there could yes. be mistakes, right? Yes. I mean, because they, they, they can't take photographs of the whole planet. They do have to stitch them together. And it certainly is possible uh, when you've got thousands of copy and paste that all need to line up exactly that you could make mistakes and replicate and so on. But are you saying that they're – because the way that you – if these people are that smart, right? I mean, you can go and see Jurassic Park and see a very realistic-looking dinosaur that makes you slowly pee yourself throughout the whole movie. But are you saying these people are very bad at creating these fakes? They are obviously very bad. 
they are very bad images because like in many instances the size will change like the size of the united states will get extremely different in different photos throughout time it's like it's just totally different it's like okay um, so they're they can keep what would be really the greatest secret in the world they can keep it millions of people a lot of whom can you imagine how much money you would make if you broke this story yeah like we, if you if you are. i mean it would be it would be absolutely staggering how much money you could make can you imagine how much money religions would make if they broke this story because this would be pretty much proof of a deity created universe right if there's giant domes and we are the only exception to the spherical model of the universe wherever there's significant mass and the universe rotates around us i mean that's genesis 101 i mean it you is. are really and i'm not even talking like uh, uh, phil collins genesis like like big guy in the sky genesis so why wouldn't religions uh, send up um, probes or, or drones or, or balloons or whatever and take pictures of the edge and come back and say, dudes, everyone is. you've been lied to. Everyone is, though. Where everyone is starting I haven't their... seen a picture of the edge. Have you seen a picture of the edge? Steph, you just said that you haven't seen the edge. Steph, everyone's sending up pictures of – everyone's sending up balloons to, to look themselves. Everyone's making GoFundMes. There's many individual balloons that have gone up. There, there are no pictures of the and edge because the edge. You, you can't see forever. Even from but they, they haven't seen the edge. That's what you said earlier, right? Yeah, you cannot see forever. It's not like we're launching from near Antarctica. If we did that, that would work. But like, in the indiv- in the individually launched rocket that went up seventy three miles from Nevada, you could see the moon when it should have been on the other side of the supposed planet. Well, I can't speak to any of that. But what I can say is that you you do seem to have a theory that can't be disproven. Because whenever I talk about standards for disproof, uh, you say, well, they guard the Antarctic and we can't check. Or well, if you, um, I don't really have an answer for that. Or there's some guy who says something or whatever, right? But that's not really science, right? Here, to, to, to say that every time that this thesis could be disproven, there's some barrier to, to that disproof. You, you uh, or you've created an alternate theory of attraction, which is like gravity, but not gravity and so on, which to my knowledge has not been proven. You, you understand that there's a lot that's not science. Plus, you have to create this universe with the dome, uh, with the Earth at the center of the universe, with the sun 32 miles across, a couple of thousand miles away. Uh, and uh, there's lots of, of challenges around this. You, you understand that, right? I, I understand that this is a very, very hard thing to wrap your mind around. Like, I didn't wrap my no, mind not. around it in 45 it's minutes. Really not. It's really not, because it is, it is in the category of false, scientifically. In in my mind, there's there's no experiment to show a curvature. Like you can go up in a balloon and not see a curvature. Like this Have is what you've gone up in a balloon. You say you don't see things. Look, are you saying that that NASA can fake the entire space mission? And and the Russians with Sputnik and and they faked the whole thing. Yep. Since the 1950s, yep. it's been completely faked. But no one can fake a picture taken from a balloon. And smooth out the curvature. Have you seen it yourself? They they use fisheye lenses, and they have like the Red Bull jump. They have a um, fisheye lens on it, and the curvature is the same from twenty five thousand feet. Have you seen it yourself? Have I seen what? The cur- like the lack of curvature. Yes. Directly with your own eyes in the balloon. Not in my own eyes, but I have seen many. So then you're looking at other people's photos, but you you discount other people's photos for what goes against your theory. Because you say, well, it's all faked. Stefan. 
But then how do you know that the photos that support your theory aren't subject to the fakery that you ascribe to those that don't support your theory? Because I know people who are doing this. You could do this yourself. That's what you should do. It's not that expensive. Get like $1,000 or so and send a balloon up 125,000 feet. Do the experiment for yourself and show us. I would love to see you do it. Have you done it? My friend Daryl is doing it right now. Have you done it? I have not done it myself. We're kind of, you know, under, you know, underpaid. <laughs> you don't have the money to do it. No. Right. But we, we do have many people who are doing it right now and who are like, actively doing this. I have a question for you. Yeah. This is, if you're wrong, this is very costly for you, right? Um, and just, just because look, if I'm wrong about a voluntary society or it, listen, if I'm wrong about being an atheist, oops, <laughs> hello, like a fire for eternity. No, come on, man. Right? I don't, so, so I don't if that. I'm wrong, if I'm wrong, like I'm, I'm conscious of this. Like when I put out stuff in my show, I'm very cautious, very cautious, right? Like, I mean, I'll say, well, you know, it could be true. And especially when I'm talking about science and stuff, right? Like global warming and stuff like that. I have never said it's false. The hell do I know? I'm just, you know, putting out reasons why I have some skepticism. And so, but if, if we look at something like religion, man, if I'm wrong, that's like the, the, the worst conceivable mistake I've ever made. I don't get to be reunited with my family after death. I don't get to jam with Freddie Mercury on the infinite laser space beam guitar <laughs> set. Like I just, I've really, really cucked up bad, right? Now you understand that if you're wrong about this, then you're crazy. And, and, and it's very, very harmful to you socially. And again, this is not proof or disproof. I just, I just want you to be aware of, of this reality, that if you're wrong about this, right, if there's no dome, uh, if the world is not flat, uh, if, if all of this stuff is just a bunch of crazy people, there's, there's then a... this is doing significant harm to you in your life, right? Because you either got to bite your tongue a lot or people can look at you like you're just plain nuts, right? I've been looking at this for nine months now and I'm, I'm actively telling everyone I know because I have seen all of the evidence that I need, but I am still learning. No, all the time. no, no. You cannot discount the photographic evidence of what displeases you and accept the photographic evidence or video evidence of what pleases you. When you say, well, I've looked at the photographic and video evidence and it convinces me, but then you say that all the NASA stuff is faked, this is where you're not thinking clearly. You, if you have one giant button that says discount all photographic and video evidence, you can't just push it for one side of the equation, but not the other. You can't push it and discard everything to do with NASA and, and everything to do with ancient history and everything to do with people who make globes and everything to do with people who circumnavigate and everything to do with cruise lines and airlines. And You can't say, well, all of that photographic and video evidence is bullshit, but all the it's stuff which conforms to my theory is valid. Like the like you said, the flights flights only travel through the northern hemisphere because that is the no, only you're short. Not, no, route. you're not listening to what I'm saying. You're not listening to what I'm saying. I am. What I'm saying is, you've not seen this directly yourself, and you discard all of the visual, all of the multimedia evidence for the position you don't like, from and you accept it all for the position that you do like. Only I only discount things from the governments that are obviously fake. Like, you, you don't trust okay, the government. You can't, you can't say that every single piece of media that has been produced by NASA 
and produced by the European Space Agency and produced by the Chinese Space Agency and produced by the Russian Space Agency for the past 60 years, that it is all obviously fake. Well, I've been... Because you, 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 you haven't reviewed it all. I right? have. I have been looking at it. Oh, Everyone come on. You have not reviewed it all. Please the, don't insult my the, intelligence. It's the internet hive mind. Everyone makes compilations. Look at them. When you look at supposed spacewalks, there's bubbles in space because they're in a pool faking it. Why would they be in a pool faking it? That would be a terrible way to fake it. Why not that's, just go into an airplane like they did when they made the movie with Tom Hanks and Kevin Bacon about Apollo 13? That's how they fake oh, because it. They're bad at it. No. They're bad at faking something that fooled entire, the entirety they, of mankind for 3,000 years. Stuff they, they put this on MSNBC. Like Their training is in a very large pool. And in every single spacewalk... Oh, is it possible that somebody has taken a pool training video and said, oh no, this is a real spacewalk? No, because this is what they put out as real. Chinese and American space agencies... Maybe they misclassified it. Maybe they got the wrong video clip. I mean, there are simpler explanations than the world is flat and the sun is 32 miles across and a few thousand miles away, somehow embedded in a giant dome created by a space goblin. Well, there are simpler explanations well, Steph, to what you're talking about. And what about the private space agencies? Like uh, SpaceX? You say you discount the government. What about the private space agencies? They have lots of uh, photos and they're, videos. They're government subcontractors. Oh, so you can discount them too? Like SpaceX. So everything that doesn't conform, you understand, I'm trying to fight for you here. I'm not trying to fight against you. I'm trying to fight for you. Everything, you have a magic wand which says everything that doesn't accord with your hypothesis, with your preferences, can be waved away. But, because you can just say, well, it's faked and there was a bubble or oh, there are government subcontractors. You can get rid of that. Oh, we can't go past the Antarctic to actually check where the edge is. That's a pretty important thing. We, we can because we can calculate where the curvature should be. We have photographic evidence and I have seen much further than I should be able to see on wait, a globe. Wait. Hang on. Photographic evidence? And like the – like I live, in Cal I live in California. When you go to the Great Valley, you see much further than you should be able to see on a globe. This is – Thing, these are things that you can find out for yourself. Like if you go to the CN Tower in Toronto, you can see... Okay, so hang on. You're saying that when I brought up the example of the ship sailing over the horizon, you said that that was invalid because my eyes were playing tricks on me or something to do with the atmosphere. But when you go to California and you look across a smoggy countryside, somehow it's perfectly valid as a way of figuring out whether you can see far or not. You understand your stuff doesn't hang together. And I'm saying this no. to you because I hate the cost <laughs> that this has happened for you professionally and personally. You may meet some great woman or guy. I don't care who you're into. Could be a, an alien. I don't know. But you might meet some great woman and then you're going to go off on this flat earth stuff and she's going to take several slow steps backwards. Or she's going to hit you with these kinds of critical questions, which I'm telling you, man, you're not answering very well because they're kind of unanswerable. No, it is atmospheric density that determines how far away you can see. And by using a telescope or a zoom, you can see further, but you can't see infinitely far. You can see further than you should be able to on a supposed globe. So what you're saying is that you keep repeating that you can't see infinitely far, right? Yeah. The fact that you feel the need to say that tells me that you're not thinking critically. Like, if I said to you, well, you know, you, you, if I kept repeating to you something like, you know, you can't see through a wall... That would be kind of a weird thing to keep hearing, right? Now, saying when you can't see infinitely far, I mean, of course you can't see infinitely far. Why would you, keep the, why would you need to keep repeating that, right? I mean, this tells me that you're kind of stuck in a loop here, right? 
Well, it's, what, it's what is, say you're, when you say you're underpaid, what's your job? What's my job? I work in a warehouse. You work in a warehouse? Yeah. Right. And do you think that the time and energy that you're spending into figuring out the flat earth stuff might potentially, for your own happiness and your own life, be better spent upgrading your skill set to get a job that paid you more? Um, no, because this is the most important thing. This shows that every government around the world is indeed working together. This is how we stop world war. Do you understand that? Because if we know that every single government around the world is colluding on this, we know that the world stage of world wars are fake. They're playing us off against each other like pawns to kill each other. This but is why, how- why do you need a flat earth to show, oh, of course all governments collude. I mean, of course they do. Because all governments justify taxation. And all governments justify, almost without exception, fiat currency. And all governments justify national debt. And all governments justify public school education. And all, judge, all governments uh, justify the capture of intellectuals in academia in order to keep them from advocating any kind of real freedom. All governments agree on borders. All governments agree uh, to a large degree, at least until recently, on immigration and restrictions thereon. So the idea that governments don't all kind of agree deep down, to me, I don't think you need a biodome, flat earth, uh, 32 mile across sun universe in order to establish that governments collude. I I think it seems like an unnecessary complication. It's not that we need it. It's that we're proving it, Stefan. But you don't need to prove it because it's already proven. How many governments come out and say, well, taxation is force? Have you ever heard that from governments? No, but we know. So we already know they're colluding. I mean, occasionally governments will say, like Barack Obama did say, government is an agency of force or whatever. It's usually a throwaway thing. But for the most part, they all agree. Governments all remarkably agree that governments are good and necessary and virtuous and, you know, righteous and and, and uh, all that. Uh, so I don't think we need this additional complication of a flat earth to know that governments collude in general uh, to keep a dominant narrative um, over the population. I mean, like it, it comes back to the nihilism of believing in a, you know, a spinning globe that could be instantly destroyed by a, a sun that could blow up or a meteor that could come in and destroy us all. We're safe here. We don't need to worry about that. We don't need to worry because God would keep Oh, the dome would keep us safe from asteroids? I guess it didn't in Arizona. Or is that crater also fake, made by medieval bulldozers or something? There's theories on meteors that I I don't really have too much of an opinion. But there are many people who think that it could be pieces of the dome. Oh, and then all the meteorite metals and ores and so on that are shown in museums are all fake. Unless, because they can't be... They'd have to be translucent, right, in order for the sunlight to get through unless the sun is embedded in it, in which case we'd still need to be able to see through it to get to the stars unless the stars are below it. See, I'm able to do this kind of gymnastics. But all of that stuff would generally be be faked then, right? I, I don't know about that. Like, I've never seen one for myself. Oh, I've seen, um, well, at least what they say are meteors. And um, uh, you would say, of course, that they're faked, right? I've also touched they, a moon rock, but then they, I guess you would say that's fake they too because be. they never went to the moon. They could be any kind of thing. They could be government projects. I don't know. We don't know what they have. We don't know what they do. And do you think that from your position as a warehouse worker that you will be able to convince enough people of this to radically change your life for the better in a way that, say, not – I mean, you've said you've been studying this for nine months. Just roughly 
um, how much time a week do you spend researching this? I have no idea, but it's not just me. Yes, you do. Is it one minute a week? No, it's more than that, right? It's many, many hours. I spend many hours listening to all of the experts who are coming out and stating okay, that so it is you've put in you've put in thousands of hours into this. And what has the net result been in your life? We are changing the world one person at a time. No, in your life. In my life. I have grown closer to our creator. So then for you, this is a religion. It's not science. Oh, I mean, no. it's master science, but generally it's a religious It is. Reference. It is science. We are proving it in every way imaginable. There is no proof for the globe. There is no proof that it spins. We have Aries failure. We have trigonometry. We have radar beams. We have no curvature. There is proof, Stefan. Are you saying there's absolutely no evidence that would support the Earth being curved? All of what they say as evidence would work perfectly fine on a flat model, which it actually does because it is flat. And would you say that there are some things that the flat earthers argue for that are also well explained by the globular model, such as the sun being 640,000 kilometers across and 93 million miles away, 640,000 miles across, 93 million miles away, that would explain some aspects of what the 32-mile-across, relatively close sun. They, they both explain some aspects of it, right? Yeah, I don't, I don't deny that it, it works on their model because they've had 500 years to work out all the, all the kinks. We're Actually, just figuring... a couple of thousand years, but okay. <sighs> well, I think, I think we'll obviously... I'm not even going to agree to disagree. I think that this hypothesis is driven by an emotional need for you, uh, and no, I would it's... imagine that has something to do with your childhood. And you said as much. I'm not right. You're saying it makes you feel secure. It makes you feel closer to your creator. It gives you a religious perspective on the world that is of comfort to you. And that doesn't... Again, that's not an argument to say that everything that you've said is perfectly false. I'm just saying that it is driven by an emotional need, uh, and therefore it is resistant to empirical evidence. Now, I have no problem being resistant to empirical evidence because we all have to invest in a worldview. And we do all have to, um, the more we commit to that worldview, uh, the more invested we become in it. And you're nine months into this, which is why I'm sort of fighting hard to reel you back in a little bit. Yeah, I, and I would say that for you to focus on things in your life that could make your life better, um, I don't think that the flat earth is the most important thing, even if it were true, believe it or not. Uh, I think that um, uh, teaching people to treat their children better, uh, teaching people to live with virtue and integrity uh, in their lives according to the standards and principles of, of virtue and goodness, which are the same whether the world is flat or round. True. Uh, you know, it's not like if the world is flat, hitting your kids is good or bad, no. uh, whether it's relative to, to whether the world is a sphere. We have work to do in making the world a better place and having people reject the non-aggression principle, which is completely independent of the cosmology of the planet. You know, a murder is a murder, whether the world is flat, uh, round, or banana-shaped. So I think that there's a huge amount to do, which is much less controversial, much more supported by science, uh, and much more um, acceptable to people as a whole, uh, rather than trying to rewrite uh, everything that they've been told about for thousands of years in their brain, for which you have to admit there is a fair amount of fairly compelling evidence. Like, you can say it's all doctored, but like it, it, it's you know? pretty compelling to the majority. A anything other than, you know, space agencies, can you just, can you prove that it's a globe yourself? Uh, I'm not sure what you mean. Can you do an experiment to prove that it's a globe yourself? 
And that but I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what that means. I mean, I, the number of things that I can prove or disprove by myself is so tiny that if I reject everything that I can't personally validate, then I'm back to like Rene Descartes thinking that I'm a brain floating in a tank being manipulated by a demon. I think, therefore, I am. I mean, I can't possibly reproduce the entirety of human science uh, and medicine. I mean, I've never seen an atom. Uh, I, I, I've never seen an x-ray. I assume that radiation isn't just tiny pixie demons attacking me with beaks, right? So um, I would, uh, I would uh, not put as a standard of, of validation that which I can personally reproduce uh, of the entirety of the human history of the scientific uh, method. You know, hell, Australia could be a giant hoax. Um, oh. maybe Crocodile Dundee was just on a big giant set you know maybe Especially, it's all the Sydney Opera House and everything maybe the Modern Family episode set in, in Australia was all just on a big giant set with CGI right I mean you, you can say maybe there's no such thing as uh, spelunking because I've never gone deep into caves you know maybe um, maybe there's no such thing as, as really really high mountains because I've never climbed one myself and, and maybe there's no such thing as underground rivers and, and maybe you know what I mean like you can yeah. go on and on with the things that you haven't directly and personally experienced yourself but we can but there is sort of an occam's razor thing but we can go with that which accords with reality uh, and that which uh, does not require massive and impossible to maintain conspiracies that go on for thousands of years but you can prove that the globe is not true no i can't you can if you go to the beach and look at a boat you know 16 miles away it should be beneath the curve. Yeah, my understanding is that it is. 60 miles away. I, I have actually, you know, I have actually been at the beach. And I, I remember when I was in, gosh, when I was in Mexico many years ago. And uh, I was sitting on a beach and I remembered this thing from medieval science class in college or whatever. And I, was, I watched the boat go away. And yeah, the hull went away. And then the top of the boat went away. And it, okay, I'm like, yeah, I'm validated. Right? It seems and to be then, curved. And then when you zoom in, it can still be there from top to bottom. We have this on video over and over. Right. It and none of your stop, video is doctored, but all of the space video is doctored. Anyway, i got to move on to the next caller. But, I, you know, I, I appreciate you bringing the topic up. It is always yeah. fascinating to speak yeah. to people who've got a radically different view of uh, our un the universe and our place within it. Uh, I'm afraid I remain... Uh, uh, let's just say squarely in the unconvinced side. But again, yeah. I really do appreciate you bringing up the uh, the case. And I'm sure right. that uh, it's a good exercise in critical thinking to take a swing at these different kinds of uh, ideas. So uh, thanks, Stephen. I appreciate the conversation. All right. Well, up next, it's Matt and Tyne, a couple. They wrote in and said, can two people be fantastic parents but horrible partners? My husband and I are dedicated to being the best parents we can be, but we have been neglecting ourselves and our marriage at the same time. I tell myself, because I love my son, I am motivated to improve my marriage. Is there a way to turn this into, because I love my husband, I am motivated to improve my marriage? That's from Matt and Tyne. Hmm. Very interesting question. I appreciate you guys calling in. How old are your kid and or kids? Uh, our son is 18 months. Right. And uh, what's bad about the marriage? Other than no sleep, no sex, early baby stuff. Um, but what's bad about the marriage? Um, uh, let's see. Well, I, 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 feel, I, I feel like I have trouble communicating with Matt sometimes. 
I'm I'm definitely uh, afraid to to bring up things with him sometimes. Um, I I get really I get really angry at him because uh, I feel like he's he's not uh, uh, like he's not listening to what I'm saying or he's not he's not wanting to talk about the feelings part of it. Um, like I express my my feelings more readily and I encourage him to express his feelings more readily, but it doesn't seem to go really past that. Uh, we've, I've listened to real time relationships, the audiobook a couple of times. And I, I admit that I, I think I, I struggled through some of it. And I think that part of it is because like, um, not seeing the forest through the trees. Like, I feel like I'm so close to a lot of what is talked about in there that I have trouble like digesting what's going on there. And then when I try doing some real-time relationships with Matt and he hasn't read it, it's definitely, it's definitely very challenging just like we're working out what the real problem is and whether I'm, I'm right or he's right or, uh, uh, and all, all of that, uh, just resolving problems is really tough. And what's a, um, Matt, did you want to add anything to that? No, I'm just going to listen. All right, we'll get to Matt's passivity in a sec. But um, what um, what what is a problem that that really keeps reemerging? Hmm. Okay, let me see if I can come up with a a good example. Maybe Matt can come up with a, a better one. But uh, well, it's usually uh, the. Sorry to interrupt. Did you have ahead. something? No, please go ahead, Matt. I think it's, we kind of summed it up and it's usually, I'm interested in the surface, the, um, the physical realm and she's interested in the emotional realm. Right. Like there'll be, is it sex versus feeling stuff? No, Mm. I'm not sure what you mean by the physical realm. Physical is in like the, the way things should be done and the way, not the way things, but the, like, yeah, our day to day, like the physical world, how we, how we, Live. Oh, like like getting dinner done, for example. That's that's one that we come up against a lot. Is uh, um, like Matt Matt does the cooking and I I do the washing up and and he will uh, you know I'll I'll it'll get late in the day and I'll be like all right what do you want to do for dinner and then I'll be like oh it's getting really late okay what do you want to do and it's really like Matt means to say okay well what do you want me to do for dinner? And why, why don't you just go ahead and get started? And why don't you just take the initiative time and do these things? And, and, uh, well, hang on. So, but if Matt does the cooking, then wouldn't Matt need to take the initiative to do dinner? If we can both agree on what dinner is supposed to be and when it's supposed to start. And well, I think, I do, do you have significant differences? Like is one of you like, let's eat at 3 AM and the other one's like 1 PM. I mean, <laughs> Are you like vampires versus old people? I mean, what uh, what do you have in terms of differences here? Uh, I I think that well the the main thing for me is that I I just want to get dinner started before Matt gets really hungry because then he gets cranky. Um, oh yeah, no, I'm the same way. If I have a constant <laughs> conveyor belt of of food, I I definitely uh, get get a bit bearish. Um, right. And Matt, and, um, and for me, I'm sorry, just like, I'll, I'll eat anything just, just as long as you don't get cranky. Right. Now, Matt, are you aware, uh, or, well, first of all, do you agree with Tyne's assessment that you can get a bit cranky? 
Yes, that's, um, that's correct. And so she is attempting to, to some degree, keep the peace and probably help herself stay a little bit more relaxed when she's suggesting that you all have some dinner, right? Yeah, well, a lot of times I'm suggesting let's have some dinner, too. And a lot of times I expect there to be, like, the you know, the dishes done before I start working on dinner. And uh, that doesn't always happen. I understand now, you know, we have the kid and she's, you know, she takes care of him a lot when I'm when she's home and I'm home. So, but but it it does still even a, happen even even after I do do the dishes the dishes will be done I'll be like all right okay now we have to decide what we're going to do for dinner. Um, okay, so you guys it, it, clearly this is not about dishes and dinner, right? right? I mean fundamentally, right? Because if this was about dishes and dinner, I club myself to death with this microphone <laughs> because that would just be like a terrible way to spend your short and powerful and wonderful existence in this world saying, well, I'll do dinner when you do the dishes. Well, I'll do the dishes after you make dinner and you should get, like, I mean, that would just be like the Bickerton stuff is not about that, right? Right. Okay. So my guess is, and I'm, I'm, I normally would circle a little bit of uh, these swimmers before taking a chomp out of one of their legs to use a Jaws analogy, but um, uh, there is a dominance issue. Do you guys have a relationship where if one of you is right, the other person is wrong and it kind of sticks in the air. Mm. In other words, if you say, uh, if Matt, if you say to Tyne, you know what, you're right. And, and I've dug in on this issue. I, I'm wrong about it. I should, we'll set a time and, you know, every day and I'm sorry about all of this. What, what would happen? I'm not saying you should, but if you did done. something like that. It wouldn't happen. What wouldn't happen? Like if we agreed to say like this is the specific time that we're gonna have. No, 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 no. Forget. I'm sorry. I'm not talking about. No, no, no. I'm not talking about organizing dinner. What I'm talking about is what happens in a relationship, in your relationship, when you apologize, it admit fault, and promise to change. Do you feel that that's somehow a loss? That the other person has dominated you? That no. they've won? That they'll now rub it in your face from here to eternity? Or is there some resistance towards? Just changing your behavior to accommodate the other person. You kind of lost me on that second half. Is there some resistance towards changing the behavior in who? In yourself. In myself? Yeah. So if you were to say something like this, Tyne, you know what? Uh, how long have you guys been married? Uh, almost two years. Two years. Almost, almost two. two years. Okay. So you know what? And how long were you going out before you got married? Six Seven. Six years? Seven, Seven years. Yeah. yeah. You guys been together for nine years? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you can't get your fucking dinners organized? No. Seriously? <laughs> no, no, this is good. This, I'm glad you called in. I'm very, very glad you called in. We'll get you working on the national debt right after the pasta. <laughs> um, all right. Um, is there a dominance issue? In the relationship. Like, I'll tell you this. Like, I, I don't have this in, in my marriage, but I've had this relationship in the past. I just, I had to win. Because when I lost, it went badly for me. Like, if, if, I, if I conceded something, I would feel that the other person that I was going out with at the time would never concede anything on their side and would simply use it as a way to elevate themselves over me and for them to generally be right and for me to be wrong. And it became virtually impossible for me to admit fault and promise to change because I felt like it was just going to get used against me. And I'm not trying to sort of say that that's the same as yours, but I'm just exploring whether that dynamic, which happens in a lot of relationships, is occurring at all within yours. You know, I, I honestly feel like that's 
that is happening. Like, I feel like that's uh, true with, with Matt. <laughs> I don't want to place any sort of blame, but I, I, I recall going through. <laughs> yes, you do. Come on. <laughs> okay. Come on. Come on, Tyne. you got to be honest with me. Our, it's uh, Matt's uh, fault. Not that I'm assigning blame, but it's Matt's fault. Come on. <laughs> come on. Come on. I'm not your in-laws. You can be you can be straight up with me and we can save a lot of time, right? All right, all right, okay. Yeah. You think it's his fault? I I huh. Yeah, he well he they'll we'll have arguments. Um I remember what no, I can't remember no, what we were arguing no, about. Yes or no? Yes or no? Yes, is, yes. Do you think I, well, just be honest, do you think it's his fault that this is a problem? Yeah. Okay. Okay. And I'm not trying to browbeat you. You can change your answer at any time, okay. right? But but we'll say yes. I'll say yes. Because because if you be- listen, the reason I'm saying this, Tyne, is that if you believe it's Matt's fault, and you're not upfront and honest about it, then it's going to come across in ways that appear manipulative to him, and he's going to resist unconsciously, right? Mm, okay. Right. If you gen- like, this is the honesty thing. If you genuinely feel that it's Matt's fault, you can say, Matt, I think it's your fault. I'm not saying it is. I'm saying that's my thought, that it's your fault. And it's 100% your fault. And I'm perfectly angel, snow white, pure, clear in the clear. But it's your fault. And then then you can have a discussion about that without the conclusion being that you genuinely metaphysically feel that it's Matt's fault. And right, no matter what he says, blah, blah, blah. But this is your if this is your emotional experience, that it's his fault, then you got to be upfront with that because otherwise it's going to be all under the table stuff, right? But I feel like I feel like I have I have trouble assigning fault when when. It's the argument is about whether he's right or not. It's like, okay, yes, you're right. And if when he's right, I have to assure him that he's right several times. It's like, yes, you're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. Uh, so, but you're not at all justified in being so mean to me. It's always what I end up saying is like, yes, you're, you're right about this, this fundamental thing, but, but you're, but you're being mean to me and I feel bad and this is why I'm acting like this. So hang on. Okay, there's a lot in what you just said. Yeah. So you're right, but you're wrong about being right because you're doing it. <laughs> yes, exactly. And because of, the, because of what you're doing, Matt, I'm doing what I'm doing. In other words, my emotions are a mere placid and passive shadow cast by the meanness of... of of his actions, right? Oh, God, I hope not. Well, no, but you said, I'm acting in this way because you did this mean stuff, or I'm behaving this way because, right? In other words, he's like the domino, and you're the domino that falls, right? He does something, and then you react and blame him for your reaction, right? Right, well, that was the part of the real-time relationships that I was trying to do. I was like, look, I'm I'm getting mad. I'm not trying to say that's your fault. This is my, my honest reaction, but, you know, I... I don't know where to go from there. <laughs> I don't want to say that that you're the reason why I'm getting mad, but that's as far as as we can go. No, it'd be helpful if he read the book. Matt, yeah. Matt why read the book? <clears throat> well, I'm not accusing you. I'm just I'm curious of why I haven't read the book because it's I important. Can think why? about that and answer you, uh, that question in a second. But um, can I just say about the at fault part first? Can I respond to that? Of course. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to. Whatever you want to talk about. Um, in my mind, uh, I would say it's usually 50-50 most of the time. 50, what is? Uh, fault, whatever. Whatever the situation is, it's 50 my, 50% mine, 50% hers. Or even in other relationships, I've kind of learned to, relatively recently that most of the situations I'm in 
or think I'm right or the person's wrong. It's really half and half like we see it differently. But every now and then there will be a point where I have to dig my heels in and say, no, this is ridiculous. And that's like, I would say 90% that I'm right and I'm just getting complete um, unnecessary heat for something that I said. Yeah, I don't know what, I'm sorry, don't want to sound like I'm rejecting what you're saying, but so you're saying a lot of times it's 50-50. I don't know what that means. I mean, the fact that you can get that exact, it makes me suspicious. It's just kind of a mantra that you say, 50-50, who knows, 51, 49, 60, 40. I mean, usually it's not 50-50. That would be like flipping a coin, having it land and stay on its edge, right? It's not Um, entirely every single situation I'm in that I'm like, I must be right and it's, you know, then this whole situation is your fault. Right. I'm not going from one extreme to the other. You're going from 50, 50 to a hundred zero or whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. So at s- sometimes, yeah, usually it's two people who get involved in a conflict and usually one person acts badly and then the other person uses those bad actions and as an excuse to react badly. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Cause, cause you know, like just to go back to what Tyne said is that we are responsible for our own actions to some degree, regardless of provocation. So what about right. our emotions? Are we supposed yes. to allow our, you know, our anger to consume us to the point where we're not thinking rationally? Okay, Matt, what are you doing? I mean, you're jumping way ahead, creating these like crazy extrapolated situations. I don't, it's like, uh, I'd like to walk north. Oh, are you saying that we go to the North Pole and freeze to death? It's like, no. <laughs> Just let's take this one step at a time, if that's all right with you. Sure. Okay. So if if Tyne has an escape valve or an escape clause, or I'm trying to think of a, a good way to put it, a get-out-of-jail-free card. In other words, well, if Matt, if you act in a way that she considers bad, Tyne, does that give you permission to act badly and not feel like you have acted badly. In other words, if you react badly to something bad that Matt did, do you feel that that gets you off the hook? No, usually I just feel worse. No, no, but in the moment. I mean, afterwards, of course, right? But in the moment. Do you, do you react like a little ferociously and then, well, you know, but you said this and therefore, of course, I had to whatever, right? I know I have. I've done that before. I've acted Can I say yes? Out. Yeah. And in the other direction, too? In the, oh, sorry, I lost my train of thought. But but this is okay. This is this is sort of the first thing that I wanted to kind of get across, which is that you have to have your standards of behavior regardless of what the other person is doing. Right. Otherwise, you really don't have free will. Oh, right? oh she, you know, sometimes it'll be like. Hang on, let me let me finish really my thought. Nice let me finish my you. thought. Hang on, let me hold hold that thought. No, let me just finish this very briefly. Right. So you wouldn't go into. Um, like you wouldn't go into a gas station or you wouldn't go pump car in your gas and then see no one behind the counter and just giggle and drive off, right? You, you'd hopefully leave the money on the – if you could, right, or whatever, right? Or or if you found uh, – I don't know, if some Brinks truck blew up and blew $100 bills all across the street, you wouldn't grab them and all just run home. You have to have standards of behavior that are not entirely circumstantial based, 
right? In other words, you, you, this is my integrity. Like, I'm not going to be abusive. I'm not going to say mean things. I'm not going to, you know, I can get angry for sure, but I'm not going to be destructive towards the other person's ego in order to win. All right. And if you have those standards, like, you can't trust people who don't have those standards because we all make mistakes. We all express things too strongly sometimes. We all fly off the handle. And we need to trust that the other person is going to act with integrity even if we slip up. And that doesn't mean it's never going to be a problem because maybe you both slip up in sequence or whatever. <laughs> but this focus on what is my standard of behavior in this relationship needs to be internal. In other words, you can't give yourself an excuse because the other person is acting badly. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now, Matt, sorry, you were going to say something about what uh, Tyne said earlier? Uh, no. Well, let me just respond that that applies very truly to us. Yeah, I agree. Um, but earlier, um, you were just saying that, you know, you can have a negative reaction to something, but you can also, ha um, you know, you can say, excuse your negative reaction because the environment or the situation. But at the same time, you know, you can kind of ignore your responsibilities if you've, like, done something good for me. Well, no, but there's a difference between the reaction and the action, right? Yeah. So let's say that uh, I see a $100 bill floating down the street, right? Now, I may have the emotional reaction to, like, grab it and run. I want to take that money, right? On the other hand, my conscious choice, knowing that my emotional reaction can be there, my conscious choice will be, okay, I'm going to grab this money, I'm going to walk up the street and ask if anyone lost it, right? Or what, I mean, whatever scenario works for you. I mean, who knows, right, what that could be. Um, Federal Reserve not included. So in terms of having a, a reaction, sure, have a reaction. Get Feel the angry reaction and so on. But the whole reason we have standards is because we're tempted to break them, right? You know, I don't, I don't have a standard which says uh, don't, don't do ballet in the mall because I'm really not very tempted to do ballet in the mall, so I don't really need that standard, right? I don't have a standard that says don't eat too much sea cucumber which is basically a gelatinous slug that lives at the bottom of hell itself, right? Because I just, you know, don't, right? Yeah, I may have a standard which says don't eat too much sugar because I got a bit of a sweet, sweet tooth and so on. So we need standards where we're tempted, right? So the fact that you're going to have an angry response, yeah, that makes perfect sense. But you have to have a standard which says, I'm going to say that I'm angry, but I'm not going to yell. I'm not going to say, you, you bastard, you jerk, you bitch. I mean, whatever, right? whatever could be said, right? And, and having those standards means that you can have win-win negotiations. Because at the moment you escalate into trying to tear the other person down or be abusive or be mean, it becomes win-lose. And then you, you can't ever... And you can't ever win in a relationship, right? I think, I think mm -hmm. maybe this is where you guys are at after your nine years together or whatever, right? Is that you can't win. If, if you have a conflict at the other person's expense consistently in a relationship, welcome to the wonderful world of blowback, <laughs> or being strangled with a starfish in your sleep, right? So if you're at the point where winning is losing, then this is a good time to review the standards that you have in terms of your behavior. So let's say, you know, Matt comes in and says, you know, God damn it, I can't believe you didn't do these dishes. That's so, you're so lazy. You never lift well, your finger up. He was on some tirade, right? Again, I'm not saying you would, but let's say that he did, right? Right. But you, of course, would be tempted to... Uh, you're just saying that because you haven't listened to me for the last hour that you've got to put some carbs in your gullet, right? <laughs> Whatever it is, right? You've got to get some food in you, and this is why. Um, but you have to have the standard that if the other person is acting in a provocative manner, that 
you can get upset, but you can't act out in the same way back because that's not going to lead anything to anything positive. And of course, you have a child in the house. Oh yeah, which means that you can't be you can't you can't be showing that behavior to your your child, right? Oh yeah, I, I feel like I've been extra conscious of that, especially when I have. Uh, let's say gone against some of my standards like raised my voice uh i've been used... scared in the past yeah i'm sorry i've been scared for our son because you know she's like storming around with holding him swinging him around i'm like let me have the baby while you do this wait uh sorry tiny you storming around raised voice with the baby in your arms uh, yeah. Not not recently. Not in a while. Yeah, but you know you can't do that, right? Yeah. It... Like you know that that is not even remotely on the list of acceptable behaviors as a parent. No, no. I, I mean, it's like being being I'm... held around by an angry giant is is a terrifying experience for a baby, right? I I wouldn't say that I'm I'm like screaming. My my voice. No, no, it doesn't doesn't matter. Doesn't okay. matter. It doesn't matter. I mean, it doesn't have to be screaming for the child to be scared, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because you're so big. Right? Like if yeah. some guy was 30 feet tall and just yelling at you, would it matter if he was screaming? It'd still be pretty terrifying, right? It doesn't matter what he's yelling about. He could be Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if he's not yelling at you but yelling at someone behind you. Yeah. Right? So that's sort of an example. Now, what what is the kind of stuff that you guys get into verbally when you get into a conflict? What kind of language are you uh hurling at each other? Well, can I Say something. Um, I'm sorry to bring up, you know, all these situations, but there was one morning recently that we woke up around five in the morning, and you know we were all tired because it was like a super late night. We were t- up talking, actually talking about this phone call, and uh, the next morning, you know, I I suggested that um, she, she get a little more sleep, and that to me meant I'm gonna let you get an hour or two more sleep. I can take the baby. He's awake. I'll take I'll take him. But in her mind, it was like you're trying to tell me what to do, and all this. Right. And um, so, Tyne, your experience of being offered a, a, a sleep in, what was that? Uh, yeah, I didn't understand it as that at the time, and and um. When I, when I woke up, um, he was like, he said, um, this was, this was before Halloween and I had been working on, uh, this Halloween costume for our son. And he said, um, well, you shouldn't be spending so much time working on this, this no, costume. No, that's not what I said though. Oh. What I said was, I'm like, Sorry. getting up early, getting up early is so important because you have to get to, you have to get home from work in time to go on a Halloween march when right. your health needs or is requiring that you sleep. Yeah, well, I felt like I felt like you were. Um, what is a what is a sorry? What is a Halloween march? She wanted to go on a little parade, take, take them around the ta- around. Okay, the- <laughs> it just it, it sounds a little paramilitary <laughs> to me. So goose stepping. I, I'm trying to picture what the what the costume. So was she wanted from. to go. You know, she wanted to take her son out, see other kids dressed up. And right. I was, you know, saying that because that's so important to you, that you're willing to sacrifice sleep. Uh, and I felt like I felt like he was chalking up all these 
this anxiety that I had that was making me really exhausted and, and all these, like, because like just, uh, talking about this call has brought up all kinds of feelings and, and conflicts with us. And so I was, I had a lot of anxiety, um, as, uh, late getting home and Matt was really mad at me justifiably so for coming home late because I missed before, my train yeah. and I was, I was really there anxious and so then I was okay, tired. So there's all these sec, things leading up and instead of but, but, acknowledging on, all sorry. those things. I, I got to interrupt. I got to interrupt. First of all, you said justifiably so. Because uh, yeah. you were late. I, I mean, like it had been a problem at work where I just lose track of time. I got really absorbed in what I was doing and I missed my train. Um, not by just like a couple of minutes and ready to catch like the next train 20 minutes later, but like I missed it by like an hour. And so I was going to be really late getting home from work. And, uh, like I messed up. I should have set an alarm. I should have been paying closer attention to the time. Um, and so I, I texted Matt and I told him what was up and, and he said, I'm really mad about that. And I said, well, you know, of course you, you can be mad. And I'm really sorry. And, um, and I'm, I'm going to work on that. Now with the waking up in the morning at five o'clock in the morning, I guess when everyone woke up, you woke up because your son was, um, was fussing. Is that right? Uh, yeah, pretty much. Uh, he He was just up. So hang on. So Matt, the way you first explained it was you said that you offered for time to be able to sleep in. Uh, yeah. And she's experienced. And then the way that Tyne explained it was a little different, right? Yes, I didn't understand it as that at first. Well, no, because what Tyne said was that you said something like, you know, it's not sensible for you to work on this costume and give up the sleep, right? I didn't say anything about the costume. Oh, you didn't? No, I didn't say the word Where did the costume costume come into it? The costume came into it probably beforehand, like the weeks before that she was working on it. Okay, so I'm just trying to figure out this, this morning thing where, so... What did you say when you wanted time to be able to sleep in? I was like, what's going on? Are you okay? And uh, <laughs> This was a couple of nights ago. Um, yeah, and I said that, yeah, I'm, I'm just really tired and um, I didn't get very good sleep the night before and I just wasn't ready to wake up. And, uh, and how did that become a conflict? Because what he said felt like he was summing up, he was ignoring all of the anxiety that I was feeling to the days leading up and all of the fights and the lack of sleep before all of that and summing it all up to, well, there's just this, this one thing, this, uh, this costume, that's the big problem. And wait, but did the costume come up when he offered you? Cause I thought you said it came up later. Did the costume come up when he offered to let you sleep in? It wasn't the costume. It was the Halloween came up. He said, you know, if you weren't uh, wanting to do this Halloween thing, you wouldn't be getting up so early to get to work on time so that you could come home and do this Halloween thing. So I'm still trying to figure out what the hell's going on. So in the morning, you all woke up at five because your son wanted attention. And then Matt got out of bed and said, do you want to sleep in or would you like to sleep in? Or I'd be, I'm happy to take him if you want to sleep in, right? Or if get no. some more sleep. Right? It wasn't that, that clear. Was, yeah, that wasn't that clear of a, I wasn't that Okay, so I still don't, so I brought up the Halloween costume and then I was told that that wasn't part of the conflict. Is it or isn't it? 
you know, these things happen, and I don't know the order in which exactly everything was said. It was obviously we're both tired. Well, no, I'm not. I'm not asking for an exact sequence. I'm not asking you to reproduce it with hand puppets. I'm just trying to figure out what the hell the conflict was about. I. So did you, Matt? Did you bring up that? She was tired because she shouldn't be working on a costume. It wasn't a good use of her time. No, it was. That's not exactly what I brought up. I brought up the fact that. But just roughly, forget exactly. I'm just trying to figure it out. I don't don't care about the mimeograph. Was that brought up in the morning? Yes, it was. was, The costume wasn't, but Halloween was. And and then later on in the, like, way, because we argued about it for a while. So the costume wasn't brought up, but Halloween was brought up. Yeah. But what what was Halloween to do with it outside of the costume? Okay, so previous, prior to this, um, I've been under a lot of pressure to get out to um, some some sort of event. And I want to do it, but it it never happens. The timing is never right when Tyne's home, when is home, and everybody's ready to go. And it just, it never, it never happened. I think some of that has had something to do with the way that Tyne was reacting. If you could just refer to him as my son, we don't want to use his name because we don't have his permission. Okay. All right. So I appreciate all that backstory. I'm still trying to understand. I asked you when you had a conflict and I still don't understand what the conflict is. So your son wakes up five o'clock in the morning. Matt, you wake up. And what do you say? Roughly, forget about the exact thing. What do you say to Tyne that ends up, for whatever reason, in a conflict. Like, are you okay? Do you need to get more rest? Like, you can sleep in. You don't have to worry so much about the, you know, getting to the parade on time or getting to the parade. Like, you should you should take care of yourself. Like, maybe you should see, you know, maybe see a professional if you're having issues, see a doctor or something. And so your idea of helping her to get a good sleep in is to say that she should go and see a doctor or a professional. <laughs> that was kind of... A, do you, do you, do you find that to be a very relaxing... I, I don't know. I don't know if there... I'm trying to think of the relaxation tape to help get you sleep. Mm-hmm. You might be unwell. You might need to see a doctor. <laughs> you might need to see a professional. Now try to get some sleep. She was like... <laughs> right? at that, that wouldn't point, really... She was, she that would like not be a very bed. hot-selling relaxation MP3, right? She was out of bed. Get- You're in a waiting room. There are lots of people around who are coughing, right? It's not, right? Not relaxing, right? I just didn't find it very sympathetic to... I get that. I get that. I get that. So, Matt, why do you think that you brought up... You you understand objectively that's not going to be very relaxing for her, right? I understand that. Okay, so so if you wanted her to sleep in, that was not a sensible way to do it, right? Right. I was using my own internal logic about like the number of hours that might need to be gotten of sleep before I can wake up and function like a normal person. Uh, Yeah. You weren't using your internal logic because let's say that I was, I would say to you, Matt, here's a stranger who's waking up at five o'clock in the morning and they're exhausted. And I will pay you a million dollars. If you get that person back to sleep, (laughs) what would you say to that person? 
Yeah, you'd, you'd play some guitar, you'd give them a foot rub, you'd, you know, whatever, put on some waterfall noises by peeing in a manly slow way into the toilet, right? I mean, so you wouldn't do what you did if you were going to make a million dollars by getting someone to go back to sleep, right? Right. So that's not your own internal logic. You were annoyed at something and you kind of took that annoyance out on time when she woke up at five o'clock in the morning when she was exhausted, right? I feel like I was actually genuinely concerned. And this is a... Yeah, okay, but that's not when you bring up... You don't bring up, I'm genuinely concerned with someone when you're offering them a chance to sleep in, right? Like, it's, it's like saying, hey, I really, really want you to get some rest. Whoa, you've got some freaky mole on your back. <laughs> I wonder what that... I think it might be moving. Anyway, have a good rest. Right. I mean, this wouldn't work. Right. No, but there were other things in, in the situation that made it. Matt, 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 a little Matt, bit. Stop fucking me. Stop. Don't Clinton me, bro. Don't fucking me, bro. This in, I'm not trying to pick on you. I'm just sort of if you want to know why these conflicts are happening. It's because you have a surface because what you told me at the beginning regarding this conflict was, Matt, you said, well, I. All I did was offer her a chance to sleep in. <laughs> Next thing you know, right? And that's so you have a story, and maybe this is a story you tell to yourself. It's certainly a story you're telling to me and the audience about what you were doing. But when we start p- pulling it apart a little bit, that's not a very accurate way of describing it. And so if you have a story about what you're doing that is very complementary to you, then it is inevitably negative towards your partner, right? In other words, hey, all I, I'm just paraphrasing here, right? But hey, all I did was offer her a chance to sleep in, and next thing you know, she's yelling at me for no reason, right? I mean, I'm not saying that's exactly the way you put it, but you know what I mean. I'm sort of exaggerating for effect, right? So if you have a story about an interaction where you didn't do anything conceivably wrong or negative or, or annoying or, or instigating or whatever, right? No, I don't think, I don't agree with that assessment. What don't you agree with? That um, I was not instigating or um, acting in a way that, wasn't ideal for this situation. Okay, but what I'm saying is that when we first talked about this conflict, and you can hear this back when you listen to this show, yeah. uh, and Tyne, you can back me up if I'm going astray here, but you basically said, you know, well, we woke up at 5 o'clock in the morning because my son needed something, and I offered her the chance to sleep in. Okay, and that's I'm not sorry, an accurate description of what happened, right? Okay. I mean, overall... It, you know, there are details that matter, but... No, that's a pretty important detail, <laughs> right? Come on. Giant mole on your back, basically? <laughs> yeah, that's sort of an important detail, right? Well, it didn't help, you know, the situation that we were in. But yeah, I get what you're you saying. Listen, if you want, if you want someone to... If you want someone... You know, if if you... If you want someone to be able to rest, you don't tell them that they're doing something fundamentally wrong to the point where they might need to see a doctor or some other professional. Yeah, well, right? there are some, you know, there are some things that I couldn't ignore at the time. No, I'm not saying that, for God's sakes, man. But you don't do it at five o'clock in the morning when you want someone to sleep in. Right. Okay. That's all I'm saying. So I just. <laughs> I'm not saying don't have concerns. I'm saying have don't have concerns and then give me a false representation of the interaction. And then do it in a negative way at 5 o'clock in the morning when she's exhausted. Come on, man. That's pulling a grenade and rolling it into a classroom and saying, gee, I don't know why there's body parts on the wall. 
You say that at five o'clock in the morning. When somebody, how did you receive that time? Was that relaxing and fun for you? No, not at all. It's kind of annoying because you're tired. Everyone's tired, you know. And of course, we know when everyone's tired, you got to be more delicate and more careful, right? Yeah. No. I mean, you, you can run if you want, but just don't run when you're in an egg cup race, which is kind of your mood when you're tired or drinking, right? Waking up. Uh-oh. <laughs> if you want to bring him here, I'll be more quiet. If you want to talk to Matt for a second, I'll, I'll mute my mic. All right. Sorry about that. Oh, don't apologize. I, I haven't heard that sound in a while. It's lovely. He sounds like he's a very happy boy. Hello? Yeah. So here's the thing, Matt. I mean, to, to know your own motivations is really, really important. And also to know the timing of when to talk about something is important. Yeah. And I think if you were sort of to judge this as an outsider, you would say that if you have any kind of fundamental criticism or things that you want her trying to do differently, then the worst time and way to bring it up is with an oblique criticism at five o'clock in the morning when she's exhausted, right? Absolutely. Okay, so that was not the right time or price or approach to bring up your concerns, right? Right. This does not excuse her reacting in whatever way she reacts, but I'm just trying to give you guys a sense of control because the way it seems like you describe this stuff is things happen to us, right? But things in relationships don't just happen to you they usually are the result of specific choices that aren't even consciously registered mm -hmm. as choices. In other words, if you say to yourself, well, I just offered her an extra sleep, which is a nice thing to do. I offered her extra sleep, and next thing you know, right, there's always this X cloud that happens in conflicts. You know, well, all I did was this. Next thing you know, we're having a fight or whatever, right? And the reason that's you can't solve that is because you don't know what is starting the ball rolling of the conflict. And again, I'm not mm -hmm. saying it's all your fault because she's, you know, probably getting behind it and pushing a little bit too. But it doesn't just happen, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you've been annoyed for a while about her working on the Halloween costume and wanting to go into the, I don't know, Nazi death camp, death march, Halloween march of doom or whatever it was called, then bringing it up when everyone's exhausted and in an oblique way that's kind of critical, I mean... That's just lighting the fuse, right? Right, and I, I definitely, that's where I would take my share of the responsibility because I, uh, uh, you know, who caused what, the situation because I was... Except, Matt, you didn't. I am now. Like, no, no, but what I'm pointing out is that now, sure, okay, yeah. we've been talking about it for 20 minutes, but what I'm saying is that at the beginning of this conversation, not only did you not take responsibility, you didn't even admit that there might be responsibility to take. And again, I'm not trying to criticize you. I'm just pointing out the difference between then and now is really important because you can't do anything about the conflict that's already happened. But the next time, if you're more aware of how little you knew about this conflict, then you can be more humble about how you bring things up the next time. Yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't actually like in, in trying to get a conflict by saying that. I was actually scared and I wanted to, I wanted to like, like, is this an important thing? Do we need to, like, see somebody about this right now? Because I was scared. And then that's that, you know, she got up and got really mad. And I said, you know, what's going on? Why are you so mad? And, and then I had to, like, 
get away from her, basically. Okay, so now you're back to justifying it, right? Because you're saying, well, I was just scared, and then she got mad, and I had to get away from her crazy madness, right? No, I wasn't scared of her. I was scared for her. I was worried that there was an emergency. What was the emergency? I shouldn't have even brought it up. No, you said you were scared that there was an emergency, but what was the emergency? <laughs> I don't think I'm um, at liberty to talk about that. All right. So, yeah, that would be my suggestion, which is to, um, first of all, if you have things you want to change that your partner is doing, that that happens. You know, we, we, Mike and I have that with each other. Stoyan and Mike and I will all have that with each other. I have that with my friends. I have that with my daughter. I have that with my wife. We all have things that we would like the other people to do differently from time to time. And I find, in general, that the best way to approach this stuff is proactively, not reactively. Because reactively, it's kind of in the heat of the moment. And the longer you've put off talking about it proactively, the more things have accumulated in a negative reactive way. Mm -hmm. And so if you are worried about something, uh, this emergency that we don't, that has no name, which is fine, then um, the the time to bring that up is um, proactively when things are at their most peaceful uh, and and. Tyne is at her most receptive. Okay. Uh, that's usually the best time to bring it up. Not five o'clock in the morning when you just woke up startled by your baby crying and everyone's exhausted, right? That's not the time to, to bring this stuff up in general. He wasn't general, actually right? crying. He was just sitting there like smiling, looking around. Well, yeah, okay, but you're still not getting enough sleep, right? Yeah. Whether it's, yeah. right? So in general, trying to be more proactive with this stuff is usually a better way to try and get these conflicts um, out in the open rather than reacting to them. Because, of course, you know, at 5 o'clock in the morning, you're tired too, right? You're usually not going to have the best kind of judgment. And it's a pretty terrible way for your son to start his day, not to mention uh, the two of you as well. And, again, this is not to say that she couldn't have reacted better, of course, right? But the only thing we can control is ourselves, right? And so if I'm going to make the case that she has to have the standards of behavior that are very high, then you have to as well, which is you don't jolt someone awake with a startled, fear-based panic anxiety <laughs> criticism disaster go see a doctor or whatever right that's not how anybody wants to start off their day right yeah that was that was my fault absolutely well again faults you know i mean you obviously thought at the time you were doing the right thing and that's how you communicated it, it, it responsibility i usually fault is usually a bit of a sort of finger wagging thing okay. to to talk about but certainly uh you know if you know which choices lead to a bad outcome then you can make choices that lead to better outcomes yeah i should have now, been more delicate in that first yeah and not the right time and all um and also it's isn't it very tough to get into anything substantial in a relationship that you want to re-engineer when a baby's awake we were talking the night before the whole like like hours while he was sleeping we were up until 1 so 30 that, in the morning talking the night before so that kind of confirms what i'm saying that it's better to do this stuff when the baby's not awake right yeah, yeah. Okay. Now, have you guys tried, or would you be open to trying couples therapy? We have tried. Um, it's uh, too expensive. <laughs> we don't have any uh, enough income. It's to still afford. cheaper than a divorce. <laughs> Not that I'm suggesting that that's the next step or anything like that, but um, it's it's cost effective relative to some of the alternatives, right? Like food. <sighs> oh, is it that time? 
Yeah. Right. And are you both working? Uh, no, I got laid off and she's working part time. So. And is her part time salary enough to, uh, no. to live on? No. No. Are you bleeding savings or getting money from friends, family, relatives kind of stuff? We're selling our personal possessions. Right. At least I am. Well, listen, I mean, if you guys really need some help to get into some therapy, which I think would be a good idea, uh, we'd certainly be happy to uh, to pay for a couple of sessions uh, if you can find somebody in the neighborhood who's good. That would help. All right. Yeah, because, I mean, I sort of feel a bit odd going <laughs> going on without uh, your wife, who's currently probably uh, dropping the great boob spigot of milky goodness into your son's mouth. So yeah, um, that's exactly what um, I'm doing. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Um, so yeah, I, I want to let you guys get back to it. But uh, if you can find a good therapist, and I've got a podcast um, on, on how to do that, at least my thoughts on that, um, then let us know. and We'd be happy to drop some bucks yeah. your way to be able to uh, get to therapy. Because I mean, this is very, very important stuff. And if you can solve these kinds of timing problems and proactive ways of bringing up issues, not in a reactive way, uh, I think that will be a huge turnaround for your guys' satisfaction and happiness because, you know, kids learn love not by being loved primarily, I think, but by watching their parents loving each other. And uh, the more that he sees on that, the happier your family will be as a whole. And, of course, what's happening right now is laying in the foundations for probably how he's going to be as a teenager. And um, the more comfortable and happy and secure his existence is now, I think the easier his hormonal reactions are going to be That's when he hits puberty and gets into his teenage years. And so I think laying the foundation for that now uh, is uh, really important. And yeah, if you guys are broke, I get it. I've been there in my life as well. But if we can help out and get you to a couple of sessions, uh, we'd certainly be happy to, to do that. Well, that's part of the reason why we're you know, in this situation. We don't want time to go back to work um, full time when is, you know, sorry, I said his name again. <laughs> when my when he's uh, you know, this young, and I don't know when right. is it, and you know, when is, when do you think is a good time to to do that? I mean, ideally, it would be great if you could get a, a yeah. job that wasn't you know eighty hours a week kind of thing and give you guys some more financial stability. I don't know. I don't know what the best time is. I, I know that at least uh, eighteen months of breastfeeding is considered to be um, a good starting place. Yeah, um, yeah. and, um, so, but, you know, part-time work is not exactly going to break the maternal bond uh, or anything like that. So, um, I don't, I don't know the answer to that, but you might want to look it up and see if there've been any studies that might help with that. Well, that, okay. I don't know if you, yeah, I was just wondering if you knew anything specific. No, I, I mean, obviously I think, I think the first five years are pretty crucial, but I don't think you've got to be staring at your baby without blinking for those five years or anything. So, okay. All right. Will you guys keep us posted and let us know if there's what we can do to help out? Sure. Yes. And uh, how was the call for you guys? I, I wish there was there was less baby waking up, but it was very helpful. They can be so inconvenient, inconsiderate, <laughs> and selfish. Um, but, you know, he's looking at that giant boob saying, it's going to be a while until I get my hands on one of these again. So <laughs> hang on tight. Well, yeah, keep us posted. And look, if you guys want to call back in uh, anytime, you're certainly welcome to. And I'm, yeah, I'm sorry for the interruption, but obviously, yeah, you know, uh, that stuff comes first. Thanks so much, Stefan. You're very welcome. Take care, guys. Thank you.
that was me. I'm sorry. No, um, <laughs> <laughs> straight off the body, back on the mic. Okay, well, up next is Clay. Clay wrote in and said, regarding your R versus K gene wars theory, does the impulse to conform to religious and cultural traditions adhere more to K's or R's? Is one group more creative? Do you think artsy counterculture types skew more R? Do K's tend to favor foreign wars or police actions like drug enforcement? Why or why not? That's from Clay. Oh, hey, Clay. I like you lobbing me the easy questions. Nice and Oh, okay. Easy. <laughs> well, I have 12 other ones, but I figured yeah, yeah. maybe caller number four, I should maybe. <laughs> now, listen, I, I really want to, <laughs> just, just to be clear, obviously give credit where credit is due. Uh, I had some impetus to look into this, but uh, anonymousconservative.com is where people should go for more of the source material. And there's a uh, Canadian psychologist, um, since deceased, um, Philip Rushton, R-U-S-H-T-O-N, who's tried to apply R versus K continuum theory to um, to humans as well. So there's lots of other people. thought I was being all kinds of original, but apparently, as usual, I'm synthesizing mostly other people's intelligence. <laughs> I've had a few things that I've come up with, but that would not be one of them in particular. So I just want to, just wanna, when you refer to it as mine, I uh, wanted to be clear that uh, it's, uh, it's a ways off from that. So, um, uh, so okay, um, what was the first one again? Okay, well, well, I mean, I, I just want to say that you've done a great job in explaining it because it's it's a lot of facets, of course, to the human race, and to sum it all up and generalize it into just like well, a, thank you, you know, I mean, a lot. It's just kind of like the political spectrum, you know, people saying right and left, and um, I and then and in a way that's maybe why I was kind of confused because on one of your presentations you said that left and right is universal throughout society. And yet, um, myself as, uh, as a libertarian, um, former GOP fan, former GOD fan, <laughs> I, uh, as you know, as the cliche goes, um, economically right, socially left, left on the war, um, right when it comes to all that PC garbage. So it's, oh, yeah. So, and sorry, I just wanted to mention yeah. E.O. Wilson was the biologist who first came up with the RK theory as a whole, but he didn't particularly apply it to, to people as far as I know. Um, so, yeah, just for those who are not in the know, so there's this, a continuum of freedoms. Uh, libertarian uh, is more social freedoms, you know, prostitution legal, drugs legal, uh, gambling legal, and that kind of stuff, uh, and more economic freedom, uh, free trade and, and property rights and so on. Uh, the right tends to be more focused on economic freedom and not so much traditionally with the social uh, freedoms. They want to ban drugs and, and all that. And on the left, you may get more of a focus, at least in terms of the language, on social freedoms, but they really want to take away your economic uh, freedoms. And this does, to some degree, conform with the R, uh, RK stuff. So um, uh, that's just want to put that back. So the impulse to conform to religious and cultural traditions is K. Okay. That's K. Now... It's important to remember that throughout just speaking about most of American history, which, of course, I can encapsulate on the fly, but, you know, with, with obvious caveats and all that. Um, you know, Coke was legal, not just the fizzy stuff, but the powder stuff. Right. I mean, and and um, gambling and prostitution were, were often legal, you know, those big riverboats and all that. So K's like cultural traditions, but they don't like governments to enforce them. 
I see. So they and want so this, I'm sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Okay. So, so they want the social pressure, like like relig- that religion. Ostracism, baby. Yeah. Ostracism Very all good. the way. Yeah. That that's how you you know. This is why you know ours can't stand ostracism, but K's are much more comfortable with it. Which is why you know when I talk about the voluntary family and so on, there's a certain type of people who react very strongly. And other people who are like, yeah, I can see that. Um, but um, the, the, the Ks are very into social enforcement, but they don't want the government to do it. Because when you concentrate social enforcement, it gets taken over by the Rs and it gets used against the Ks. Ostracism can't be used against Ks. It's as a group, right? K's can use it against individuals. But given that K's follow the rules in general and R's don't, and again, this is not just made up by me. You can look at gene wars. There's a lot of physiology behind this. Um, but because K's in general will follow the rules and R's won't follow the rules, the R's get ostracized in a K society. And so the R's really dislike ostracism as a means of enforcing social standards. So when I, you've seen this, uh, Tom Winnicott, I think was his name. I I talked about this with a lawyer uh, about how you would deal with a crime in in a voluntary society. And he played me back an article from like, I don't know, 10 years ago that I wrote that was on lewrockwell.com. Uh, about how you would deal with a rapist in a free society. You cut off his, his, his electricity, you cut off his water, nobody sells him food until he surrenders himself and goes through whatever trial would restore his, or he goes and lives in the woods and nobody cares about him anymore because he can't function in society. Tom, Tom Wilcutts, so you can look at this debate. And he played this back to me like this was somehow supposed to, I was supposed to go like, oh my God, did I actually say that? And it's like, yeah, I said that and I'm, I'm comfortable. I'm perfectly comfortable with ostracism. And um, because I know that the alternative to ostracism is the state. Now, when you have ostracism as a means of enforcing social standards, you don't need the state to enforce it. And ostracism appeals very strongly to K's because uh, K's are pack animals and they're actually much more social animals than ours are because the rabbits don't have any particular tribal loyalties. And, you know, a hawk can come and swoop away uh, a rabbit and the others barely even stop eating, right? <laughs> you know, they oh, good, one's gone. Now I can relax for a bit because the hawk has eaten something. And so K's are, love the ostracism because they ostracize the R's because the R's are the rule breakers. So a voluntary society, a small government society, is good for K's, really bad for R's. Now, if the R's can convince the K's or whoever can convince whoever that the government is needed to enforce these standards, that's very bad for the K's because now the capacity to enforce standards in a cost-effective, voluntary, minimal way through ostracism has now been taken away from them. And this giant predator has been created in society called the state that in general the R's will swarm to get control of, as you can see from communism, which is the ultimate R philosophy, and socialists and so all swarm the government and try and take it over. Sorry, you were going to say something? Okay, uh, what's the temperance movement, like prohibition, was that linked with the churches? No, that's uh, R's, it's the women. Women were all driving that. Okay, so the churches didn't, I mean, I... The churches did, but it was the women's temperance movement. And what it was, was when women got the vote, women take this huge gamble with their eggs, right? Because they have to find a guy who is going to stick by them 
And this is prior to really effective and readily used sheep's bladders and crap like that as a condom. But this is prior to any sort of effective and, and easy to use birth control. And so women take this huge gamble with their eggs. And this has been the, the, the challenge and, and horror and glory and um, you name it of femininity, uh, particularly in, in humans who are the most case-selected species, is that women are disabled for 20 plus years. Usually from like 15 to 35 or 20 to 40, they're disabled for 20 years, having kid after kid after kid. So they need a guy who is going to stick around with them when they've been turned into Pillsbury dough chicks by constantly squeezing out pups in their increasingly flabby lower extremities. And after their vaginas have been stretched so wide that it's like spelunking going in there, right? And so they've lost their youth, they've lost their looks, you know, their boobs are hanging down that they can tie their shoelaces with their nipples if they're very dexterous, you know, they've, they've just turned into a mess. And so as their sexual market value plummets, they need a guy to stick around to provide all the cheddar that they need to help raise the babies, put a roof over their head and so on, right? Now, women who choose well, they don't need a state because they've got a, um, a husband. Now, even if something happens to their husband, if they've married into a good clan of good guys then they can go and live with the husband's brother or the husband's spinster sister will come in and help or, you know, the, the church of the will, will chip in and so on. So it's not even if the guy gets, you know, hit by a comet or something, there's still a whole bunch of Ks out there who will step in and fill the gap, right? Now, if the woman chooses badly, in other words, if, if uh, the guy turns out to be a drunk, and, and if he turns out to be a drunk, and we know this from the... Um, Work that Gabor Mate has done in the realm of hungry ghosts, the degree to which childhood trauma brings on addictive personalities, which means if he's a drunk, most likely he comes from a really bad family, a mean, abusive, destructive family. And so if the husband's a drunk, he's not going to work and, and his extended family is crap too. And in general, if his extended family is crap, it probably means she comes from a crappy extended family too. So what happens is she gets pretty desperate because she just rolled her egg dice and came up snake eyes, right? The guy's just out, takes all his money, goes to the track, uh, gambles on the ponies, uh, uh, goes to the strip clubs, uh, goes to an opium den, goes to a bar, blows all his money or whatever, right? And so when women didn't have the vote, well, women had to choose really, really, really well. And uh, I've said this before in the show, and I'm sure I'll say it again, that when I was studying the history of the novel, one of the great things that came out of it was seeing that these novels in general were instruction manuals for eggs. <laughs> Here's how to get your eggs to the right sperm. <laughs> Here's how to get your eggs to the right sperm. That's what was going on in these novels. And uh, you can see this with, with Pamela. You can see this with a novel called The Narcissist. You can see this with Dostoevsky's novel. Get the right guy. It's super, super important. Now, Jane Austen's novels are all about this. Choose the right guy. Don't choose the guy who's handsome. Don't just choose the guy who's rich. Choose the guy who's honorable, who's decent, and so on, right? And, you know, the, 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 in, in Pride and Prejudice, you know, the challenge of this guy who's got a whole bunch of daughters to marry off, I mean, it's crazy because, you know, one thing goes wrong and your whole family fortune and, and future can just go up in smoke. And so when women didn't have to vote, uh, they had to choose really, really good men. And then when women got the vote, if the women chose badly, they could then rely on in-group preferences with other women to convince women as a whole to do things like ban alcohol, to, to, to ban gambling, to ban uh, uh, drugs, to ban, like all these things that were causing their men to be less productive. The women asked the state to backstop their bad vagina decisions 
by pointing their eggs and getting impregnated by shifty, worthless, trashy guys. And then, of course, you know, women took care of the old people, so they wanted old age pensions, and then they wanted the welfare state, then they wanted unemployment insurance. So that if their husband got fired or got laid off or whatever, and they didn't have any, enough money saved, they could go to the government to get that money uh, for them. So women um, are more are selected than men are. Again, lots of uh, Randian slash Thatcherite uh, slash Ann Coulter style uh, exceptions to all of this. But um, women are generally a little bit more are than men. So when women get the vote, you get this huge impetus towards a, an ever-growing a welfare state. Now, to some degree, that is not the woman's fault, of course, uh, because the First World War created a dearth of men, thus causing more women to want to turn to the government. And the Second World War created a dearth of men as well, because so many got killed, that again, the women turned more towards the government uh, as a substitute. But um, uh, that is the challenge. The Ks do not like government. And remember, ours flourish when there's, a pre when there's predation. And when there's excess resources plus predation, that's the nutrient-rich Petri dish for the R, R gene set. And so to create a predator called the government, which also simultaneously gives huge amounts of resources, is the ultimate stimulation towards the uh, R, mindset, uh, R gene set. And also, of course, the R gene set flourishes in the absence of a father. Right? That's one of the fundamental programming, environmental epigenetic programmings for the R gene set flourishing is if you can keep fathers away from children, you are growing a perfect storm of our society seppuku. So um, that, I think, is is how traditions and the state and banning things work with the Ks and the Rs, if that makes any sense. Okay. Uh, I had another question, a related question as to the causes, because you've said that um, life in a war zone or the ghetto will um, bring about more Rs, but then again, but those environments don't seem like they're too um, resource-friendly. You see the contradiction there? Because like a war zone or the ghetto, they're not going to have as many oh, no, the resources. Ghetto is no, the ghetto is incredibly resource-friendly. Well, these I don't, days, I'm not, right? I mean, but like, no, but like a war zone. No, like the ghetto war is, no, no. First of all, we'll, we'll deal with the war zone in a okay, sec. Yeah. The, the ghettos are incredibly resource-friendly. Because you have to remember that the R versus K gene set, the K gene set is supposedly, uh, again, going by some general theories, which I can't obviously prove, but the, the K gene set arose in a time where like for at least a quarter to a third of the year, you were at risk of starving to death because you had a big giant winter that meant you couldn't eat very well or very much, right? And so the R gene set uh, flourishes when there are significant resources enough that you're relatively comfortable. Danger is not negative to the R gene set. In fact, danger provokes the R gene set response because danger means that there's predators, which means you better have sex early and quickly as much as humanly possible. Your, your sex drive goes through the roof uh, and your pair bonding collapses and, and social standards collapse. And you just, you just consume as much as humanly possible and create as many babies as humanly possible, right? I mean, the rabbit is just, <laughs> the grass is just the rabbit's way of, of making, uh, a rabbit, sorry, a rabbit is just nature's way of turning grass into more rabbits as quickly as humanly possible. And so in the ghetto, in the modern ghetto, resources are plentiful relative to people's necessities, right? You've got food stamps, you've got Section 8 housing, you've got free health care, you've got free schools. Relative to having enough resources to fuel the R gene set, there's more than enough. Now, if you start to talk about um, a long, lean winter in Siberia, 
that ain't the ghetto. <laughs> That's a whole other kind of thing, right? And Or if you're looking at something like um, where the predation is really excessive uh, in terms of the Black Death in Europe in the sort of 12th, 13th, 14th centuries and so on, well, that's really bad too. Uh, so, um, uh, no, the ghetto is is not uh, at all a K-selected environment. It's fatherless, and there are more than enough resources for people to survive on. People don't starve to death in the ghetto. Even the bums don't starve to death in the ghetto, and that's really all you need. Okay, so I was confusing food with violence. So danger is violence, resources is food. Right? Is it? Are you yes, using- that's right. Yeah. And and in fact, the, the perfect storm of the ghetto is enough resources for everyone to live on combined with random predation, uh, both from the criminals and from the police response that the criminals, criminals often provoke, um, uh, combined with the fatherlessness, combined with the vanishing fathers into prison and so on. I mean, that is, you know, that is one of the reasons uh, why it's become so relentlessly uh, R-selected uh, as time progresses. And this was perfectly predicted in the 60s, by the way, which is one of the great tragedies that nobody ever listens until it's too late for apologies to do any good. Okay, so what is the evolutionary purpose of R? Well, it, it, the evolutionary purpose of R is exactly the same as the evolutionary purpose of everything, which is to create as many copies of itself as possible. But, I mean, what does it do for the human race? Why have we kept the R trait after all these eons? Because it works really well in certain conditions. It works really well in times of war and famine, and it works really well. And no, it's not so much famine. It really it works really well in times of war and in times of plague and so on. Right. So, I mean, obviously, one of the big killers used to be smallpox. And sometimes upwards of 10 percent of the population in any given area would die in every couple of year period from smallpox. And so if smallpox was an omnipresent danger, as, of course, were things like cholera and diphtheria and typhus and tuberculosis and all that kind of stuff, then you better have kids young. And you better have lots of kids because you can't really do anything to prevent yourself. They don't even know about hand washing. Right. And uh, so you, you just you have as many kids as quickly as possible because you simply don't know. If you wait and say, well, I'm going to have kids with the most uh, handsome and strongest and, and most fit person, well, you, you know, the fitness doesn't do you any good if you get infected with smallpox or, or the bubonic plague or something like that. Or if there's, you know, Genghis Khan comes along with 10,000 horsemen and, you know, it doesn't matter. You know, it's a great old, um, uh, it's an old comedy bit where a guy is talking about uh, these storms in, um, I mentioned this in the show years ago, it just popped into my head. That's a pretty funny bit. He's talking about how guys want to experience a hurricane, the, the power and force of nature. They really want to experience a hurricane. And so what they do is they say, tie me, tie me to this tree and I'm going to experience the, this hurricane and the ferocity of nature firsthand. And it's like, it's okay because I've, I've participated in an Ironman competition and I'm super fit, right? And he says, uh, he says, well, you know, the reality is it's a hurricane and it really doesn't matter. You know, when a Volvo comes spiraling through the air, it really doesn't matter how many sit-ups you did that morning. You're cream. <laughs> You're toast, right? Yeah. And uh, that's kind of true, right? If you can't do anything to avoid the predation, then you are in trouble, right? Okay, so... Sorry, one other thing. Okay, go ahead. The reason I exempted hunger was that there are things that you can do to avoid starving to death in a climate with high variability in temperature, right? Which is that you you work really hard, you harvest uh, your crops, you keep your seed crops to plant again in the spring, and you domesticate some animals, and you measure your eating, and you participate with your... There's lots of things you can do 
in order to stave off something like hunger or starving to death. But there's not much you can do when it comes to when diseases come ravaging through. And I, I would suspect that birth rates went up considerably when diseases were ravaging through because people immediately switched to our behavior because that's what we do. We adapt on the fly. Uh, and um, this is why, you know, if the welfare state ends, people will just switch to K again. I mean, I mean, it's, yeah. okay, it's a little bit of a transition. It's not exactly a smooth 180, but, uh, you know, they'll, they'll just switch to that which best serves their genes, and women will start choosing better guys, and guys will start sticking around, and, you know, all the old values of, uh, you know, cross your legs, grit your teeth, and wait for Mr. Right, well, they'll just reemerge very quickly. And the women who are currently, um, you know, screaming at men as sexist, nasty pigs, they'll be just like, oh, shit, okay, I guess a better be nice because you know i need the man again so uh, all of that will change and everybody thinks that all of these ideologies have something to do with belief systems no they just have to do with where resources are being applied in society and if women don't need men then women can put down men and when women need men again they'll be nice to them again and everybody will say oh look feminism did a strange 180 it's like well people follow the benefit right Okay, so I'm using my high school understanding, uh, public high school, <laughs> of history. But did not the Renaissance come after the Black Plague? Um, so did the R's, did they bring on the Renaissance or maybe the Enlightenment? Was there an abundance of R's then? Uh, well, I mean, that's a big complicated thing. And um, Jim Pellman, who's been on this show, has got a whole theory about that, which you can – read his book, which I'd recommend, and, and listen to his interview for about that. In the RK paradigm, though, uh, a couple of things happened. So <clears throat> under the Black Death, the R's died more than the K's. Because the R's generally are <laughs> R, 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 uh, are pirates. R. <laughs> the, R, the R's are generally crammed into close quarters. They're you know not as intelligent. They're usually not as sophisticated. And the richer people were the ones who lived outside the cities on private estates and so on, right? And... Um, so during a time of plague or pestilence, the R's tend to die out more. Um, there was, of course, the little ice age that occurred in uh, Europe uh, in the early to middle part. I can't remember exactly which century, 15th century or something like that, um, where there was famine. Now, of course, famine hits the poor harder than the wealthy who generally have their own livestock can go and hunt their own game on their private reserves and so on. And so there was a lot of... Um, uh, Rs were deselected out of the society as a whole. Plus then, of course, you have um, – uh, I, I don't know the specific connection between this, and I, I would even hesitate to guess on the fly. But there is a significant gene set that's associated with religiosity. And um, a religiosity has a genetic component, which is why, you know, some people end up religious even if they're raised in atheist households and other people end up atheists like myself even if raised in religious households. There are genetic components to this. You can only convert people so far. At some point, there is, you run up in, to, for a lot of people, against a genetic wall, unless they're really, really uh, willing to um, uh, focus on reason and evidence despite their particular preferences. Uh, Jim Penman, Biohistory, colon, Decline and Fall of the West. You can get this at biohistory.org, well worth perusing. And so the religious warfare that occurred after Martin Luther named uh, nailed the 96 thesis, 94 thesis, whatever it was, to the church door in, Witt in Wittenberg and took on the Catholic Church and created a variety of, sundered Christendom and created a variety of sects, um, which then proceeded to slaughter each other, all trying to get a hold of the power of the state to impose their own ideology or doctrine on everyone else. This wiped out a huge proportion of the religious gene sets in uh, humanity. So 
in Europe, you had the first, the R's all got wiped out and then the religious people all got wiped out. Because if you didn't have the religious mindset, you weren't willing to go and fight and die. Uh, they were the equivalent of sort of the modern religious uh, terrorists and extremists. You weren't willing to go and fight and die for something that just you didn't believe in because genetically you just don't have that gene set that gives you those weird mystical oneness crap with whoever, right? And so the first round is the R's get wiped out. The second round is the religious people get, get wiped out. And then you get the Renaissance and the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution. Uh, and then you get the welfare state and we go 180. <laughs> so that's a very, very brief history. Okay. So um, presently the, with the migrant crisis going on, um, these mostly gentlemen, from what I understand, um, if you call them gentlemen, <laughs> coming from the Middle East and um, they uh, – and and, I, and if if I remember correctly, you said that there was not going there was going to be a bit of a culture clash. Does that have anything to do with R and K, like the K of Europe and the R of the Middle East, or something like that? I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if there were elements within that, but um, I, I I would certainly put the R and K far behind secular versus religious fundamentalist. I think would be a much more uh, important. Um, uh, a, a much more important division between religion, uh, sorry, between Europe and, and the Middle East. I'm just sort of thinking on the fly that um, the one thing that that Christianity is relatively noted for is that it tends to use, um, it tends to spread by the word rather than the sword, and it tends to punish by ostracism rather than uh, imprisonment, at least since the uh, Renaissance and Enlightenment, that's been sort of the way. And, and according to a, some of the early stuff, that's the way it went as well. And so um, I, I think the big challenge with, with um, Europe is, is when you, you know, most of the migrants coming into Europe are men and young men. And there's two phases that young men need to go through to be domesticated. First, they have to get married. And secondly, they have to become fathers. And that, in a successive way, reduces the aggression of their testosterone-based uh, nervous system and, and uh, uh, biochemical system. And without that, when you have a large proportion of unmarried men and who won't become fathers, uh, you end up with um, big problems in society. And uh, so, again, is it R versus K? I mean, sure, that may be part of it, but I think that the largely secular versus religious fundamentalist and uh, huge waves of men who don't have enough women to marry within their own tribe or within their own culture and who are most likely going to be rejected by the women in Europe, uh, that's not good. Uh, you know, that's not a good situation at all. Right. Okay. Well, um, also, um, I can stick with the religion vein of R versus K. Um, if R, if you would like to move on to the next question with military or, um, but um, I just, well, I was listening to your death of reason presentation and um you mentioned the vault, the scenario of the primitive man and the volcano god, and not angry in the volcano god. And if the R is um, less traditional, less fundamental, would the R be more skeptical of the volcano god? Hmm. I mean, would that be, bring value to his tribe? No, the it, 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 the R's are not skeptical of the dominant narrative. I would say the R's are skeptical of the rules that the dominant narrative is designed to enforce. In other words, the R's are not typically skeptical of the existence of God, but they would want to cheat 
that system. In other words, they're skeptical of the rules that God is supposed to be enforcing. Okay. So are rules and laws synonymous? Like, cause no, our, no, no, no. Because no, rules and laws are not synonymous because laws okay. are, you know, enacted by the state. Oh, and so rules you're talking are about mores. You, yeah. You know, one is, one is uh, rules can be enforced without a state. Like there are rules to monopoly, there are rules to chess, there are rules to, you know, whatever, like social engagements and politeness and etiquette. And they're all enforced without the state. But a law is something where, you know, the state comes in and throws you in prison if you don't obey kind of thing. So, um, so the R's, remember the R's are not, they have no moral adherence to the rules of the society they live in. And, and you can read, you know, the, one of the fundamental manuals for the, the R gene set is Saul Alinsky's Rule for Radicals. Yeah. Where he basically says, uh, yeah, just use the, use the values that people have against them. Use the rules that they believe in against them. Smash them with their own rules. We, we don't care. We don't have any rules. We, we, the only thing we want is victory. The only thing we want is dominance. You just you use whatever people's prejudices and, and whatever their particular fetishes for goodness is, you use that to smash them up. But they can't use it against you because you don't, you don't have any goodness. You don't have any values. You don't have any rules. So they can't use that weapon against you, but you can use that weapon against them anytime you want. That's, that's a few pure distilled, distilled uh, R perspective. Right. But I typically see R's as having like an egalitarian ideals. As having what? Egalitarian. Is, is that the way to pronounce? Is that the way for egalitarian? What's the word that, you know, it means like. Uh, Egalitarian, I think. Egalitarian, thank you. I, I like egalitarian because <laughs> that actually sounds pretty K to me. Egalitarian views: the rabbits shall bow before me, and they shall be beheaded to be stuffed into the beaks of my babies. You know, Phyllis yeah, Schlafly does have the Eagle Forum. That's one for group, so <laughs> right, that might work. Right, right. <laughs> Sorry, egalitarian. Sorry. <laughs> yes. Uh, okay, so um, it seems like they tend to have more egalitarian ideals. Everyone's together. I mean, everyone's equal, and um, that seems like an ideal. So no, no, no. But hang on, hang on. Because in order to have that, you need a very powerful state, and so ours want to. I mean, there's there's two kinds of ours, right? The followers and the leaders, right? Because you can't have an R society, like you can't have a communist society without an all-powerful state. You can't make people equal because people aren't equal, right? I mean, if you want everyone in the world to have to, to win and lose exactly the same number of chess games, whether you're a grandmaster or three years old, right? right. Then you need someone in there who's going to jig all the rules and who's going to change the outcome because people are going to win and lose chess games on Different ratios and different levels because different skills, different concentrations, different desires, different abilities, different intelligence, different spatial reasoning, different deferral of gratification. We're all different, right? So if you want to make everyone the same, you need an all-powerful state, which is why ours are sheep defined by their need for a shepherd, right? They are followers. You can't follow unless there's someone in front telling you what to do. Right, but don't they want to bring out about a nation of sheep, and isn't that like a... You can't world? bring about a nation of sheep without all-powerful shepherds. Right, right, but they, they're thinking of like, we're going to use relative means to bring about our ends, and our ends is equality, and that is still like a, a moral to them. See, like no, no, no. Equality they're... is a morality. 
Everyone's everyone's no. It's not equality. It's not. No, you got to stop using these words like equality because equality is too neutral a word, right? Okay. Because I don't know whether you're talking about equality of opportunity or outcome, right? Outcome. Outcome is what what the R's want. Okay, then it's then don't use the word equality. Okay. Violent redistribution. Right. Like like if I'm saying everyone in the bar has sex tonight, then what I'm talking about is coercive rape, right? So I wouldn't want to say, well, it's just sexual opportunity. <laughs> no, it's like I'm saying everyone in the bar has sex tonight. Sorry, ladies, if you don't like this guy, I'm pushing his squishy, middle-aged, lard-ass muffin top all over you, right? And so the R's just want free shit because the free sh- it's like the R's, the R gene set wants free shit because that's what makes the R gene set breed so well. It wishes to create an environment where limitations are removed and where there's predation. So for that, you need a redistributionist state that's coercive and brutal and dictatorial because it creates the predation that attacks the people who, which provokes the R tendencies. And also the redistributionist state gives them free stuff and free stuff is nectar of the gods to the R gene set. And also with an added bonus the Ks will be disproportionately preyed upon by the R-selected redistributionist state. That's the beauty of it, is is not only is it a predation that flourishes the R gene set, but it also wipes out the competitive K gene set because the competitive K gene set can't stand it and is constantly rubbing against it and, and hates it. And also, the K gene set generally has more money. It generally has more resources. Like they're saying, uh, well, if the rich only paid their fair share, it's like, oh, really? So the fact that like 5% of rich people pay like more than half of the taxes, that's not their fair share? In fact, that's 10 times their fair share. No, it's got to be 20, 50, 100, right? It strips resources from the Ks through the violent state, redistributes it to the Rs, which allows the Rs to breed more, and is the added bonus that a lot of Ks end up getting killed or thrown into gulags or whatever, right? Uh, concentration camps and, and taken out of the gene pool. Yeah, because the Ks can't stand the R, R society in the same way that the Rs can't stand the K society because they generally lose out. Okay, so um, the whole bleeding heart liberal stereotype, um, is that just they're fooling themselves? They don't have real empathy? It's just their genetics are bringing on this fake empathy where they think they care about other people, but they don't really. Well, no, they, they don't care about the case. Okay. They just right. care you, about you, other you ever, Have you ever heard a socialist ask a rich person, how do you feel about paying so much taxes? You know, and the, the right. tax rate before Margaret Thatcher got in on, 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 on money that you invested and got the return from was 98 fucking percent. Right. You, you, you invested, you made 10,000 pounds. You only got to keep 200 pounds of that. And there were no socialists saying, wow, that must really hurt. George Harrison, who writes a song called Tax Man, right? There's, there's one for you, 19 for me, <laughs> right? That's because they were at a 95% tax bracket. They don't give a shit about the K's feelings. But there's two things. See, the K's care about the poor because redistribution hurts the poor. It helps them in the short run in that you get free shit, but it hurts the poor in the long run because, as I talked about with Bill Whittle and the analogy from D'Souza, about the carts, which you can go and listen to. Um, we just put out this uh, presentation. But um, um, the Ks actually care about the poor because they're an, an in-group preference tribal species, right? They're a pack species, the Ks. So they care about the poor. 
But they care about the deserving poor and they're willing to let the undeserving poor be punished by their own bad decisions in order to make sure that you don't keep growing more and more poor by subsidizing their bad decisions. So the K's actually do care about the poor. The R's don't give a shit about the poor. And socialists don't give a shit about the poor. And we know this because everywhere that socialism and communism gets implemented more and more and more, the the, the poor end up doing worse and worse and worse. Are they consciously aware that they are just being enablers in the long run it's not going to do well for the poor? Or are they just fooling themselves? Well, why, why would I possibly care about that? I'm, I mean, it just, it just, okay. No, you're trying to have empathy. You're trying to, you're trying to get me to have empathy for people who for don't R's. have empathy for me and I won't do it. <laughs> okay. That's the big fucking K mistake. Oh, but these poor R's, they know not what they do. I don't care. <laughs> I don't care. Do not ask me to have empathy for people who have no empathy for me. That's the fundamental K mistake is to extend the tribe to people who hate you. Let's let the Middle Easterners in. What could go wrong? Don't have empathy for people who don't have empathy for you. An excess of empathy, as I said before, is both a sin and a crime. I don't care whether they know or don't know or like or don't like or the degree of self. I don't care. Because I'm not going to try even remotely to step into to have empathy for people who have no empathy for me. That, that, that way, self-destruction lies. And that's how the K's get screwed every single time. I mean, the, the R's are always talking, are like the leftists are always talking, oh, multiculturalism is wonderful. Hey, is that a conservative I smell? Smash him, slander him, lie about him, kill him. You know, I mean, it's like, it's so insane. I mean, wh- where on earth do the, do the liberals have any kind of, like, do the newspapers say, well, shit, in Washington, about 90 to 95% of us are voting Democrat. That's not very multiculturalism. Let's try and get... conservatives in here because that's much more multicultural. They don't do that. They don't give a shit about multiculturalism. They just like the fact that if you bring in a bunch of incompatible people with a K culture, K people react and then you can scream racism at them until they give you their firstborns. So no, I I don't care whether they know or don't know. I couldn't give much less of a shit because I'm sorry until they start showing some empathy for me. They're like flies in my house. Okay, so it sounds like I'm sticking up for ours here, but no, no, no. I didn't say you were. You you were genuinely curious, and I understand that. Yeah, I am. Uh, You are genuinely curious. Don't do it. The way the way I picture this stuff is through a lot of stereotypes. I mean, visually, I I need to see the R, what the R is. I think you know, hippie, um, Earth Earth Mother Goddess, or whatever you know. Or I mean, there there are lots of different variations, but that's like a stereotype, I guess. So, um. But you know, so but one thing you said is that ours are less intelligent, and I know, of course, there are going to be exceptions. Um, but uh, you know, there are the leaders are very cunning. The leaders of the ours are very cunning. Okay, but in so general, that, that's like the the Bernie College professors. They're they're on like the on the bell curve. It's kind of equivalent of you know how you said that men and women are different. That you know, men you have get really smart and really stupid, and women are more in the middle. So is could it be that way with ours as well? That maybe with ours you have some. No, no, no. They're they're stupid because sorry, they're stupid because they have the weapon of slander, and when you have the weapon of slander, you're by definition a complete moron. Because the Socrates says, when the debate is over, slander becomes the weapon of the loser. Right. So because 
the the left and the R and the communists and all of them, because they can just scream slander at people, they don't know how to think. Right. Any more than if, if you have a, a remote control kill device that you can activate with your brain, you're not going to learn a lot of jujitsu. Right. Why would you bother? You don't need it. And so the R's, yeah, they may, they, they, they've developed exquisite capacities for verbal abuse, slanders and lies. But they can't think to save their lives. And again, just go to the Bernie Sanders videos that I've done and just scroll through it if you dare. And you'll just see snarkument after not an argument, after bitchy little nothing, after rhetorical question. And, oh, so if I get this straight, got it. You know, it's like, that's not a fucking argument. You exquisitely ornamental morons, right? And they don't have to learn how to think because they can just, like, I've said this before, but uh, during the uh, McCarthyism, right, and all of that, there was a guy named Whitaker Chambers who was member of the Communist Party, and then realized how that he was on the side of evil. And he began to work against the Communist Party. And the Communist Party reacted by slandering him, like, viciously and endlessly. They said that his brother committed suicide because he'd had a homosexual relationship with his own brother. And when you look at McCarthy, McCarthy was saying, hey, there's a lot of Soviet spies in the State Department. And they just slandered him and slandered him. And he actually won a suit against uh, at slander uh, against... And they just slandered, and, and this continues to this day. All they do is just slander, and you've got this image of McCarthy as this crazy, foaming-at-the-mouth, paranoid, red-baiting, insane guy and all that. No, he came from a poor family, very accomplished guy, a lawyer, very intelligent, a very young and able congressman and so on. And, uh, sorry, sen- in the, the Senate, I think. And um, this uh, was um, – they just all they have to do is, is vomit up slander at people. Over and over, they just, they lie, they lie, they slander, they lie, they slander, they lie, they slander, they lie. That's all they do. Okay. And because of that, they don't actually ever have to learn how to process an argument, how to rebut, how to deal with facts, how to deal with with reason. Republican U.S. Senator from the state of Wisconsin. Um, Like people think that McCarthyism had something to do with Joseph McCarthy, but McCarthyism was a congressional inquiry, which he couldn't do because he was in the Senate. Anyway, just lie after lie after lie. And this is the way that the left operates in general. And Ben Shapiro has got some great uh, analyses of this and and how to respond to it, which you can find uh, pretty cheap or or free online. And so they're they're not smart. They're cunning and they're manipulative. And and this is what people from a state of weakness – usually use, you know, slander, right? If you lose an argument, then you can go around slandering people and then pretend that you've won. And it works on other people. Uh, and it's, um, there's, there's an old line from a Ray Bradbury uh, story where basically, you know, if you take away guns, people will hit each other with clubs. And if you take away uh, clubs, they'll strangle each other and, and so on. And if you tie them all up, they'll just stare at each other and try and kill each other with hatred of the mind or something like that. And that's um, that the the left they will just stare at someone and pour vitriol and lies and hate at that person until they provoke ostracism from the case and then they've won, right? And that's some of the observations I've seen, especially more lately. And I'm thinking that um, because if you look at the left-dominated fields, what do you get? You get reporters, you get professors, and you get Hollywood. Well. You know, that drives the media, which drives our culture. Well, maybe in the past, K's controlled our culture. 
through like religion. Yes. Well, a case, yeah, a case controlled the culture because you usually had to come through religion or, or focus on some religiosity. And um, that's changed quite a bit. Uh, that has changed quite a bit. And now ours are very dominant in the uh, culture. And um, I don't even know what to say about that other than, um, you know, I, I wrote a lot uh, when I was younger and couldn't figure out why everyone said my writing was like the greatest thing ever and then nobody wanted to publish me. It's like, now I know. Because I was writing K novels, and there's just an R audience out there in general. Um, so uh, that's a uh, that's the reality of of where we are. And you know, you generally you you just don't see high quality. You cannot see high quality arguments in an R society because they're they're just trying to portray people as good or bad, like. I watched the movie Inside Out. I don't know if you've seen it or if you have any kids around or whatever, but I won't. I may do a review of it, so I'll just oh, wait, really that's, basically that's touch on it. That's the Pixar film, right? Yeah, uh, that's the Pixar. Moods. Okay. I, I like the idea of it because I've talked about this ecosystem that we are a bunch of competing emotional uh, and psychological agencies within us, but different personas, different uh, alter egos or alters, as they're sometimes called. And that we need to have them all at the table. They all have value. And there was some of that in the film, which was kind of cool. But because the culture is so overwhelmingly R, any culture that elevates women to a status of goddess is fundamentally R by definition. Because it's devaluing men and elevating women, and that is the ultimate petri dish for breeding the R mindset and the R gene set. And so you have these emotional, like there's a little bit of disgust, which is more like a valley girl. And then there's, there's hope and positivity and peppiness and just all sorts of wonderful things. And then there's like a really helpful kind of sadness that's really, and these are all the female emotions, you see. And they're so gentle and they're so helpful and they're never aggressive and they're never violent. Now, who are the male emotions in that movie? Anger! <laughs> Lewis Black on, you know, full coke in the head mode, right? I mean, is anger is and, he, he's and paranoia, paranoia and terror and fear and anxiety. See, those are the male emotions and the, their value is never talked about at all. Um, in fact, they're just difficult and disruptive. But the, the female emotions are so gentle and so sensitive and so empathetic. And so without sadness, how can you empathize with the elephant? <laughs> like just again, they, they can't help themselves. Well, they you can't help themselves. It, it, it's not even a conscious choice anymore. Well, you have said that um, ours are highly fearful, but they're fearful of imaginary threats. And then you, you've said that like K is, has, is a mild anxiety. So is it just a, a question of degrees? Well, it's, it's a little, I would say it's more complicated. It sounds like a bit of a cop-out. But even if we say that they start with the same levels of potential anxiety, K's by embracing competition, learn how to manage anxiety, learn how to deal with anxiety, learn how to know what is appropriate and inappropriate anxiety. But ours, by being mildly depressive and usually not very good at sports, end up avoiding competition. And because they avoid competition and they avoid the challenges that competitive anxiety will mount within your system, you know, the desperate desire to win, and, you know, managing winning is really complicated because... The more you want to win, the worse it is to not win. And if you want to win a lot, then you have to really, really, really want it so much that you're willing to do, you know, Michael Phelps, you know, 12 days plus a bong training regimen to, to become a champion swimmer, right? 
So you have to really, 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 really want to win in order to become excellent, uh, top-notch at anything. And have the right genes. Well, yeah, but okay, but lots of people have the right genes, right? But you have to really, really want to win. And then you have to deal with losing a lot. So learning how to manage that anxiety uh, is fundamental to the K experience, whereas the Rs just avoid anxiety, which is why they end up completely hysterical, right, to the point where they can't hear contrary opinions without screaming for fascistic-style censorship and demanding a, a hug room. So um, I don't know what the origin of it is, but they certainly have tested and found that the um, uh, liberals, uh, the, the lefties, have more envy centers and so on, and the right have a stronger fear and disgust uh, response, but also better at managing it, right? Because people on the right, I mean, to be on the right, to be K-selected, these two are not synonymous, but just in general, to be on the right means to be disapproved of. Of course, because the dominant culture is K, is R, sorry. To be, to, so to be K is to be disapproved of. So automatically, I have just respect for anybody who's um, on the K side or on the Republican side. Again, these are not synonymous, but in general, just because they're not going with the flow, which means that they're willing to be rejected, which means that they have a strength of character that is not, you know, the left just leaves floating down a stream of prejudice. They don't have to work as hard. They don't have to push back as hard. They're not as negatively selected. Uh, there's not that much hostility, you know. I mean, it's the basic thing that if you write stuff that goes along with the professor's particular beliefs, well, you don't need a lot of footnotes. But if you go against what the professor believes, then you've got to justify everything. So who's going to be the better scholar? Well, the person who disagrees with the professor. And the person who disagrees with the culture as a whole is going to be a stronger-minded thinker almost by by definition. Right. But um, you, you've also said that um, the R's don't like the rules and they don't like the ostracism, but it sounds like it's become to where the K's are the ones going against the flow or the K's are becoming less conformist now. Yeah. Well, the R's, the R's like the rules that they can use against the K's and they like using those rules, Right. I mean, like the, the left is constantly screaming that the right is prejudiced against a whole group of people, whereas, of course, the left is viciously prejudiced against half the population who are Republicans in the United States. Viciously pre prejudiced. And uh, so the R's love the rules with which they can trip up and ensnare and destroy the K's. And um, the, uh, the K's... Um, the K's great weakness is to extend the protection of the K tribe to the R's. Uh, and um, until that is addressed uh, and understood that there is a Gene Morris set going on, um, we're just going to keep swinging back and forth. All right, listen, I've got okay. to wind this up because I'm, I'm RKing myself into, <laughs> into oblivion, but uh, I hope that gives you some context. And please understand, I am... Like so far from being the final word on any of this kind of stuff, these are just my thoughts about the subject. Uh, please don't take anything as gospel. And, and you know, there are biologists and, and people who've studied this stuff, uh, obviously a lot more than I am. This is just me trying to work within the paradigm. So take that for what it's worth. All right. Well, thank you for your time, Stefan. Uh, thanks for the invite and um, fan of your show. And you've inspired me to do a podcast of my own, too. So, Oh, fantastic. Yep. I, I'm uh, glad to hear it. I think that's wonderful. The more the merrier. 
Uh, I think that's great. Okay, cool. Thanks, everyone, so much for calling in tonight. And uh, as always, it is a genuine honor and privilege and pleasure to be able to talk about these very important issues with y'all. And uh, please don't forget, please, please, of course, don't forget, uh, given that winter is approaching, uh, which means the case selected need to hoard up and survive, freedomainradio.com slash donate to help out the show. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for watching. I will talk to you soon.